The following program features language some listeners may find offensive. Listener discretion is advised. For me, I was never a battle DJ. So my battle, if you want to call it that, or my part of like, like come battle me like this then, which nobody could ever, ever do as far as I'm concerned. And if they can, I'll shout out to you all now who's listening this now. If any of you can do what I did within Goat Boy and Headcase with the records, flipping 15 records in a matter of one minute on a stage, well, I had to pick like seven breaks off one record and I had 15 records. So what's that? 78 f***ing breaks? Yo, yo, yo. This is Deck Masher Slicer Man. Um, speaking on the Hip Hop Cymru Wales podcast with my man Luke here. And we're going to be running through some deep, deep Welsh hip hop history shit. Listening to Hip Hop Cymru Wales, a podcast exploring the trails and untold tales of Welsh hip hop. My name is Luke Bailey and I'm a podcaster, best known for the Fly Fidelity podcast. And I'm talking to key players about the notable and nuanced evolution of Welsh hip hop history. Welcome to the program. This episode, we're joined by former member of Headcase Lads and Goat Boy, producer and turntablist Deckmasher Slicerman is with us for an intimate conversation in which we delve into his legacy and one-of-a-kind stories. Enjoy the conversation. This is Slishan with uh, AKA Slicer Man or Deckmasher Slicer Man from Swansea, Wales. My earliest recollection, recollections would have been Dougie Fresh and um, and the Electros in in the context of hip hop music. But um, I, my first um, contribution, I guess, without knowing it really, because. Um, uh, it, 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 to me, it wasn't part of hip hop, really. Um, at least, you know, um, in the context of what hip hop is, or what we later found it out to be—the um, four elements, five elements, etc. Right. Um, was was tagging, you know, graffiti. You know, I didn't do burners when I started out, but it, I was tagging. Um, so that would be my first recollection of what hip hop was. But like I said, you know, to me at that time, it wasn't hip hop. It was just me tagging, doing graffiti. Then um, 
when the music came about, Dougie Fresh, Electros, all that sort of stuff, um, which I think was about 84, was it? Um, or something around about that time, um, <clears throat> was where we started getting a bit of a better understanding of what actually hip hop was, or actually just you, you hearing the term, you know, because obviously um, hip hop um, came from the army thing, didn't it? You know, it's hip hop, hip hop. Um, so we didn't really hear about that at first. You know, um, in those early days, um, or even call it hip hop, if I, that I remember, it was just a bit. It was a bit later. It was more mid eighties, late eighties that, um, or late, mid to late eighties that um, the term hip hop came to us. You know, um, as in the meaning of it, sort of thing. So, how old were you at this point, and where were you living? Um, Tag wise, I, I I grew up. Um, up until about age 10 uh, in a place called Penland, which, you know, anyone from Swansea, even to this day, can, considers it the kind of Bronx of Swansea, you know. <laughs> um, uh, it's worse, more Bronx now than it was when I was younger, actually. It, was actually, uh, it wasn't too bad back then, but... Take but yeah. me into that timeline back then. Describe that atmosphere. What was that like as a growing period during that time for you? Um, well, I think... The school had a big part of who we were with with myself and uh, and a lot of, but I say a lot of people in Swansea because it was different schools. But myself and a lot of the lot of the crews that I knew later on, um, or through um, the more the immediate interaction with uh, with hip hop because we went to an all boys school which was uh, which had eighteen hundred pupils, and they were all selected from the craziest areas of Swansea, so like. You know, I couldn't have said this to you back then, obviously, but now, looking back, I think the um, the fundamental basis of that roughness contributed to us. Because hip-hop as well was a little bit rebellious, you know, um, to me anyway, you know, certainly the graffiti side of it. Well, absolutely the graffiti side of it, because in all the early graph stuff was was illegal you know you know you weren't meant to tag you know bus stops and in trains and all this sort of stuff so so the rebellious side of it I, it definitely came from that um from the schooling you know because of being in an all all boy school where where every air every rough area of swansea um was put in that school basically it was the only school literally the only school in swansea that had all boys and uh and it was the only school in Swansea that was chosen rough areas to put these boys in, you know? Um, so it was a rough school, like, but um, it, it kind of, you know, it made us who we were at the end of the day. So um, <clears throat> rebelliousness, graffiti, yeah. Um, after hours, um, I'm going to put it sort of like uh, youth clubs and stuff like that. That's where the breaking came about and people, we started witnessing people break dancing and stuff when the electros started to arise and all that. So, uh, yeah. My first musical experience would have been, at least visually, would have been Dougie Fresh and stuff, you know, on top of the pops and all that stuff, which I think was about 84. Um, so I went to, to Penland School 83. Uh, I moved from Penland, even though I still went to Penland School, I moved from Penland, living in Penland, to a place called Forest Farch, which was, um, you know, because Swansea's not a big city, it wasn't really far away from Penland. It was probably... I don't know, three, four miles away from Penland uh, in a place called Forest Farch, which was the edge of the green belt. And uh, it was like uh, you had uh, the river and the, the woods and everything right there on one side. And then on the other side, you had all factories, 
which is where we used to do a lot of our graffiti uh, and, and stuff. Um, so kind of, a, for me, it was the best of both worlds. I had the, I had the, the greenness in me, the, if you like, the hippie, <laughs> you know, uh, or the, uh, the future hippie to be. And, right. uh, and then the, the rebelliousness side of the factories where we do the climbing and, uh, you know, the graffiti and, and, and whatnot. So, um, yeah, they were my earliest memories. Definitely the, um, the youth clubs school, because, um, from the youth clubs into our old boys school, breakdancing would happen then as well. You know, kids would take the line out of school and, uh, and we do the breakdancing in school. Uh, obviously not all eight and 1800 pupils were like that. It was strange, strangely only a small amount of us. Um, but, you know, we were sort of left to it, you know, like a lot of other stuff that might become trendy. It segregates people in a way where people fight or, or, or feud over it, but it, that never happened with hip hop, you know, um, certainly not in that era. I think the, if any feuding or whatnot came, that was later on, you know, um, through, through gangs in the city where you'd have a couple of hip hoppers that were, we were friends at first ish. And then, um, as, as the mid to late eighties came, we were kind of no longer friends or no longer friendly. And, um, it would sort of go off in that direction. And, and, and then you'd have little factions of hip hop people, groups, whatever. And then by the time, and, and at, at that time as well, I feel like any kind of form of music that comes out you know, when it, when it, when it first comes out, it is trendy, you know, it's like, you know, people who haven't really got it in their heart, they're just following a trend. Um, jump on board as well and then when that trend sort of fizzles out a bit the ones who actually love it um uh, or whether you could whether you could look at it as part of their essence and part of the, who who they were meant to be uh, i don't know but um the ones they're the ones that stayed with it you know and, and and obviously those are the ones that are still there uh to this day doing graffiti or doing or djing or you know uh, uh creating the music etc so that, that that was my definitely my earliest memories would be uh, graffiti tagging leading from that to the youth clubs breakdancing electros and then visually seeing Dougie Fresh on top of the pops because that was the first hip hop thing I visually saw you know and uh, I think they all hugely contributed to what would be the next step for us which was you know with me it was it was I was emceeing you know. Um, and the first guy I did it with was um, was Jazz, uh, a guy called Jazz, who, who did jump on a few of our shows <coughs> as um, <clears throat> as a sort of a skit man, if you like, you know. Yeah. He was uh, he was never a rapper. He did DJ a little. He, he DJed before me, and I was rapping, you know. But I was doing the typical old school rap, you know, the funky fresh in the flash. You will confirm that we are deaf, all that sort of rap sort of stuff, you know. So we again just finding our feet, you know, and even up till the mid to late eighties or maybe eighty, eighty seven, eighty eight ish, um, when I knew, you know, when I started DJing by then, and um, I knew I wanted to be a DJ, um, and even at that point, I was still fascinated by the production side of it because uh, people like Mantronic were out at that point and uh you know to this day my favorite producer but uh, and because of mantronic he he made me want to produce you know those beats those edits and i love the edit side of it and uh, of producing not necessarily 
because samples and all that weren't really uh, prevalent at that time. It was uh, obviously drum machines and, and whatnot. Um, but even when the sampling came about, I was still <clears throat> all about the edits, you know, and the drum yeah. machine stuff. So, so yeah. So it's through writing and all of these elements you've been talking about that magnetically leads you to DJing. Who would have been some of those touchstone influences that actually got you to want to DJ? Uh, well, so, uh, the reason Je- uh, Jazz got us a set of decks is because we met a guy uh, called Frosty, um, who, I mean, you know, we'd already heard on the street that he was a bit of a, a troublemaker and stuff like that. And, uh, but, you know, intrigue, I guess, got the better of us. And we, you know, we hunted him down. What was it a, you were hearing back then about um, Frosty? Uh, that he had a set of turntables, you know. And to me, it was like, what? You know, because when you're that young, when you're a kid, <clears throat> when you're like, you know, four, 13, 14, uh, 15, it would have been about 14, um, I think, 15, maybe tops, age 15, which, um, no, we were 15 in that in that black and white photo I posted. No, so it would have been about 13, 14, actually, we saw him. And even though I, we both saw him, and I was like, fucking wow. I, it was a long time ago. So, like I said, I was doing a bit of MC, and Jez didn't have decks at that time. We were just over his house, you know, um, using his parents' hi-fi, which was like one of those top, top-end range hi-fis from Audio Excellence, with, you know, where, where the, the turntable was like, you know, three inches deep. Um, really expensive, you know, hi-fi, and uh, he got in trouble quite a bit with his dad for, for for blasting music loud on it. But the sound was super crisp and clear, and we'd be bumping Mantronic and the electros and all that. So before he had decks, we just we, we were just listening to music, and throughout yeah. the listening to music, if you had the odd twelve-inch that had an instrumental on it, I'd start writing raps. And I think at that point, Jazz was like, "I got to get that turntable." So. At which point of uh, that, uh, maybe say 84, 85, at which point of that year he said, I'm going to get him for Christmas. I don't know whether it's beginning of the year or leading right up to Christmas. I don't know. But um, yeah, so, so that's what, I, you know, he wasn't, his parents were loaded or nothing. So um, I think he, uh, I think it was. It wasn't just as easy as oh, can you buy me decks for Christmas? You know, it was. Um, he had to do something as well. He had to save up or whatever. So, so anyway, he he said that, and I was like, okay, you know, we'll, we'll see what happens from you. Up until that point, we're listening to music, um, still attending the odd youth club, and uh, and checking out the break dances and stuff. Um, doing a little bit myself. I think I was more. I was definitely more crazy legs oriented and popping than I was a windmill boy, you know? Um, whereas some of the other boys were more specific to windmills, et cetera, et cetera. So I was more of a crazy, you know, I was, I was good at the crazy legs, you know? When you say the other boys, who were some of the other guys breakdancing? Who were some of the B-boys and B-girls breaking back then? Well, they, they, as good as a couple of them, as good as a, a few of them were, they were, and it's quite sad really, because one or two of them, <clears throat> A guy called Nicky Taylor was by far the best. I can't remember if he actually entered a competition somewhere and won it. I don't know. But again, to them, as good as they were, and you know, the talent was embedded in them. You know, it's certainly yeah. two guys. Nicky Taylor was one, um, and a guy called Charlie was the other one. And uh, they were amazing. You know, they just they just had it naturally. But it was trendy to them. So when it came and went, you know, they just didn't bother doing it anymore. You know, they, they weren't... 
the culture wasn't it didn't embed in them as much as you know a select few of us if you like you know yeah um i mean from what you uh when it comes to cardiff and stuff and, and like 40 and the early boys when they were doing it a couple of years before that obviously they, they what they did would break in we were trying to do with dj and 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 sort of mc you know that stuck with us breaking stuck with them and they and they, and they went all out with it you know and, and went far but with us it was um because i wasn't that good a breaker and jazz didn't break dance at all um there wasn't enough of us to really i guess you know to force that through whereas um because we're breaking back up back then yeah it could be one breaker but it wouldn't really go anywhere you know you have to be part of a small crew at least you know a small or big crew um that was in my experience and uh opinion that's what that's what created the best breakers back then you know when you were in crews so we didn't really have that you know it was just a couple of us and uh and there was a few other boys from the other side of the city that were djing and uh um doing a bit a bit of mc in but again one of the mcs was more of a trendy mc as in it, or he treated it as a trend and um you know he didn't really get into it any more than that and that was that so then the the, the ones who really <clears throat> didn't have the deep deep heart with it they, they would sort of filter out as the years as the two three years later went by and then the hardcore the ones who you know absolutely loved it as the culture and everything else would stick with it and what they'd done for the two three previous years still do to this day um so um yeah nicky it was definitely nicky taylor he was like i can i can remember him now he was absolutely phenomenal at every single thing he did breakdance wise you know he could do he could do the things that they were doing on beach street you know um pretty much nearly all the things they were they were doing in that burnout in the roxy he could do whether he sat at home watching it endlessly to suss it out, I have no idea, but he had it. He had it locked, and it's, it's such a shame that he never went further with it because he would have been a world champion by now, no doubt about it. Um, so he he was the forefront in my mind, Nicky Taylor for for breaking. But again, cut, again, you know, he was in and out of the culture like you know in no time. Yeah. Um, jazz similar. Jazz was a uh, you know he was a friend more than anything else uh, from a young age, um, young young age, you know. Um, from from about the age of uh, five, because he lived on the edge of where uh, my grandparents lived, and every time I would be at my grandparents from a young age, five or six, we would sort of semi hang out, and um, um, I know Nobster came came sort of like <clears throat> kind of he came later, but he and he didn't come and stay. You know, he came and then he moved to Bristol with his parents for like three or four years. And then he came back, and then he was, then he was a beatboxer, and then we went to Penland, and then he went. I think he went back to Bristol, or he moved away somewhere else. Um, so it was only. So he was. His involvement was very fragmented in in um, in hip hop. You know, he didn't get into it like like we got into it straight away. Right. Um, uh, but when he did, he was the beatbox. You know, he was busy B, um, or busy beatbox, I should say, not busy B. But um, um, yeah, so. It was Nicky Taylor was a, um, but again we didn't really hang out with Nicky. He was just we were just at school with him, you know. We knew him from school, and 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 kind of that that was it, you know. I didn't live far from him, but uh, you know we never really went over his house or anything. It was always just the youth clubs we would meet at, sure. And and the majority of the youth club as well, they were just youth clubbers, you know. You had a bunch of the guys out the back smoking. You had a bunch of the girls in there. It wasn't like. You know, like the Bronx was when the youth clubs, you know, uh, when hip hop was coming about with the youth clubs, because everybody in the youth clubs would be into hip hop, you know. But the youth clubs down here, 
weren't like that you know they were just local youth clubs and uh when the electors came about and and uh, and i can't even remember if i'm honest with you who was playing i know people who had electro tapes and uh i can't remember whether they were whether there was a dj as in you know because djs then obviously weren't really scratching djs that were playing in youth clubs it was just playing records you know playing playing it was electro yeah and it was pretty much it, it was always electro. It, all those early youth clubs, all all those tracks came from the electros. You know, they were people were playing playing electro compilations. No one knew how to get get hold of these records or, or, or cassettes or whatever. And I remember being like in the second. Let me think now. So I'd be eighty six, eighty two, eighty four. Uh, when was Cozy's first album? Out? Was it eighty six? About eighty six. I think eighty six. Uh, yeah. yeah. So I, that was the first. Outside the electros, that was the first tape I, I heard off a guy in Penland School who'd just come back from New York with his family. And he got handed a copy of Cool J's album. And, you know, we were just like melting, you know, we were like, wow, yeah. what the hell is this? You know, this is mind blowing. Yeah. So I heard, you know, I heard Cool so Electros and then I heard Cool J. So I heard Cool J before I heard, um, you know, in a hip hop, you know, rapper kind of context, before I heard, uh, anyone else aside from obviously the singular tracks on the electros um uh, so the first you know solo kind of hip-hop aggro was was cool j on, on a rough tape that someone had from new york and uh that just blew me away but we were asking him and you know he, we were young you know and he was like I, I don't know where to get it you know i have no idea where to get this um it was only a little bit later that we started to realize maybe when we were 16 70 just about leaving comp around about the time of the uh the black and white photos we had done in school, um, the graph photos, um, the earliest photos of us as a kind of a, a crew, uh, three of us, SD posse, uh, sorry, three style posse, we were called at the time. Uh, we just kept, kept flinging names around as kids because at that time we weren't, we loved it, but we weren't serious. We were serious in a way where we thought this was going to go anywhere other than us just hooking up and having fun, you know? The passion for it, the love for, for listening to it when you get into something um, that, that's suddenly new when, you, when you're that age, you know? The Shudo Posse was, was just kind of like me and Jazz at first. And then... Um, like I say, we're just flinging names around, you know, uh, trying to trying to act like these people that we were sort of falling in love with, you know. Um, oh, I want to be a crew, I want to be a posse, you know, and we just make it up, you know. It was nothing nothing at all serious about it until when we were the three-style posse because you had Danny, even though I did a bit of graffiti or previously did graffiti to Danny, um, as, in, as in tags and whatnot, I think by the time we, we were the anti posse, uh, sorry, three-style posse tsp i think by the time we were that we decided to do that jazz was like not gone but um he was just still scratching his records in his bedroom and and and, and kind of like not really doing it much and, and whatnot he didn't have the, the drive and the passion um that uh when i say we did i think even to this day uh throughout my whole life and i see it with other people as well and i think it's across the board if you've got if you've got a bunch of people you've always got one driving force they're not all driving forces you know uh, there's always one that actually drives drives the rest if, if you like you know there's the one that organizes things there's one that 
you know, makes the phone calls and says, right, are we doing it today now? And, and this and that and the other, you know, it was never, it's never all the people. There's always one, one, maybe two people that sort of are the driving force behind uh, stuff. And um, I, I guess that was me, you know, the, the driving force, not just early on, but throughout my whole life, you know, most of the stuff that we, we've done, most of the people, what they became wouldn't be what they became. We wouldn't have done what we'd done if I, you know, if I hadn't like sort of, just got, got off my ass every day and said, right, come on, let's chop, chop, let's get this sorted, you know? Um, without that, people just drift and do their own things and then nothing happens. Um, it's, it's the same with with the other small crews who stayed long-term in, in Swansea. You know, there was... Um, it was only a couple of us, really. You know, like the graffiti, the, the graffiti boys were, sick, were more solo. They weren't so much crews, per se. But the DJs, you know, wise and DJ side of it... Yeah. Um, when they actually started to develop as a sort of a, a crew later on, um, there was always one driving force in them that would that would that organize. Was you. That was uh, you. Well, you brought the structure. Me on, me on my side, but then you had of Alfie, course. who was DJ Demo, who um, throughout Swansea's history did the nightclub stuff. You know, um, a little bit later than meeting Keith Keith Woogie, and um, and you know he was the driving force behind behind sort of that, at least in that era, you know, um, he's another guy you need to chat to certainly about the, the hip hop side of, of nightclubs and DJ. And, you know, he's, he's a le- as legendary as I am in that respect, you know? So, um, I don't even like using that word legendary. You know, I think people are only legends when they're gone, you know, um, not when they live in, but, but yeah, he's just, he's up there, you know, with, um, on that side, you know, he is the forefront, him and Keith doing the space space and whatnot. But yeah, so I DJ'd, um, when jazz sort of like it was quite obvious to me that he even with me being a driving force to try and get people together <clears throat> he wasn't really he, he didn't want it like i wanted it you know and um even though we remained friends and we still to this day friends um and you know what we've done and everything else and we've got him on board stuff you know just to be there with us like i said gigs skits and things like that um it's blowing him away every time. He just can't believe that it's us doing it, you know. And I, and I, I had to say to him, pull him to one side and say, "Look, man, you know, you know what I was like. You know, I would never give up on on stuff, and that I was, I was always going to do this." And uh, yeah, so some of those old school boys, they really, really appreciate um, us, me, you know, and and the fact that we, st- you know, we were called the old school no sellout boys. You know, that's what we were known as to to a few crews yeah. down here, down here, because. Even when people went kind of over from hip hop into rave, when the rave era came about and the warehouse raves and all that, we were like, ah, fuck that, man. You know what I mean? I'm, 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 hip, I'm hip hop. That's it. End of. You know what I mean? And not in an over moralistic sense. It just wasn't, it just didn't feel right for me. It wasn't me, right. you know? Um, even though I'd gone to the occasional rave for a laugh, I was never into drugs. I was I was a boxer, you know, and uh, I was always quite, quite fit and healthy and um, it didn't, didn't really. Um, do anything for me the, the idea of it at all so so yeah hip-hop was was it for me it was in, i could feel it in my veins you know and i am um, just a necessity for me somehow to you know from the moment we realized that we were gonna we were actually a proper crew and we actually could make music and possibly release it from that moment you know that i i i, I hadn't looked back you know um Obviously, like everyone in life, I guess, we all hit walls and have hindrances and, and some more than others where things, you know, hinder us. But I, I've never, I've never, ever given up. I've just had periods in, in my life where I guess life gets in the way, you know, um, like one uh, sort of period during quite, you know, quite a, 
what could have been, you know, quite a, a, a higher or more elated period in hip hop for us, where because I was a boxer and I, I fought a lot, um, I ended up beating up this guy who was hitting this woman, and I ended up going to prison for it, you know. So, so when I um, so that period then obviously put a stifle on what we would be as a crew, if you like. And then, uh, you know, I was only in for a few months, mind you, but, you know, obviously the, the before that and the after that, so it was like a year before, year after, it was like, you know, it wasn't the same, you know? So, um, so anyway, yeah, when I came out, um, that was around, I was about 17 then, you know, so I uh, long left school. And uh, so obviously prison mean, you know, it wasn't like, the, the main wing, it was YOs, they call it, Youth Offenders Unit. It was another part of Swansea Prison. But, um, yeah, when I came out, I um, my life changed for the better. I was never, like a lot of people that go in, who get institutionalised, and they, they kind of either love being in there or they just don't think there's anything to it. And I'm like, nah, this is bullshit, you know. I, I'm fucking never coming back here again, you know. You know, even though I, I did have a fucking laugh in there, I will admit, you know, because... Uh, people did look up to me and stuff in there because of my family name. My family name was quite big down here at the time. Um, but I hated that. You know, I always say when people say, Oh, you're a fucking culinary. I'm like, Oh, fucking hell. Yeah. So <laughs> I, you know, I don't need my family to back me up. I'm, I'm me, you know, but yeah. So pe most people who know me are, 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 can be quite intimidated by me because they think I'm going to fucking do something naughty or nasty to them. But that was many moons ago, you know, all of that. Yeah. And I was never a bully. I was a bully vigilante, if anything. I used to fucking beat up bullies, like, you know, because I got bullied myself when I was a kid. So, so, but yeah, I just never took shit off anyone. And, and I think from that moment to now, it's the same. It's no different. Like, I just don't take shit off anyone, like, you know. So from that moment, let's talk about the evolution of these two crews, which you mentioned a couple of minutes ago, both of which were very much important in equal part to your come up. How do you meet Soda? And Dane. Right. Yes. Obviously, um, Knobster, Soda at the time. Yeah. Our meetings were fragmented because he he was, he's kind of been like this all his life in a way, you know, knapsack on your back, off on the road, and he don't see him for a year or two. And, you know, and, uh, and you just got to get on with it in between that. So even this was, you know, even after we hit a point around, um, the first demo that was sent away to Hip Hop Connection by a friend of ours, Hardcore No Tricks, the track was called. And all it was, it was a loop beat, you know, that was a prevalent loop beat within hip hop um, with me cutting over it and um, and Soda rhyming over it, you know. Um, so unbeknownst to us, he, a friend of ours, Paul Duncan, D-Rock, uh, one, one of the Bont or Ponte de Lice boys, he sent it away to a Hip Hop Connection uh, and... Uh, the next thing you know, we didn't know he did it. We didn't know he sent it away. All I know is that he knocked on my door one day and said, right, I've got some good news for you. I'm like, yeah, what's that? And he's like, we want a record deal. And I'm like, what the fuck are you talking about? So which he explained what he did then. And I'm like, what do you do that? And I, and I was like, what do you do that for? I was just a bedroom demo. You know, it wasn't even, a, we didn't consider it a demo because we weren't of the mindset of making hip hop, you know, to release we were just jamming you know, having a laugh as crews kind of do when they get together and, uh, you know, not just hip hop, other cultures, you know, you just get together, you hang out, you do what you do. And, and that's that. It, was no, it wasn't a point in our minds that we thought we were going to go anywhere beyond that until he did that. So, so, so Duncan, D-Rock, he, he, he created our path by doing that, you know, 
if it weren't for him doing that, we may never have made music beyond me coming out of prison or or whatever else, you know. But I knew it from that moment in my heart. And I, from that moment, I thought, because I suppose, you know, if you're a guitar player and a musician and, you, and you've learnt to play it, you know, classically or by someone's taught you or whatever, then, you know, your brain's got to tell you that you have a chance to get somewhere in life with that. But with hip-hop, it was, it was different. It was so new. I mean, obviously, decks weren't considered an instrument or nothing like that. You know, it was just so... It was something that was so brand, brand new and outside the box. To me, it was like... It was never a possibility to be able to do what these guys are doing on, on the electros or, 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 like, Cool J or anything like that. And... Um, so until he did that, until he sent it away, and we won a competition, you know, just a little light bulb went off in my head, yeah. thinking, "Fuck, now, you know, we can, we can do this just like anybody else can do it, you know." So if we want to do this, let's do it. So that I think, even though before then I was a driving force to some degree within my own life, um, and I do, you know, what I wanted to do, you know, whether people liked it or not, um, if they weren't there to do it, and yep, okay, well, I'm going to still do it anyway, you know, whether it be graffiti or whatever break dancing you know um so until that happened that demo moment with the, with the, with the record deal we won like one track on a compilation and a girl that's older was seeing at the time called sarah um aka sweet p she um again she was his missus so she would just like i was saying just now just jump on our tracks and have a laugh you know and just you know write some rhymes and but because she was a female and nobody down here was rapping, female-wise. Um, I guess whoever was doing this competition or whatever must have seen that and thought, right, because this was, you know, she she did that shit. I, maybe before the We Pat Girl Rappers and, 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 and the She Rockers and all that, you know, or certainly close to that era, around about that time. When, when were they, 89, 88, 89? 88, 89, yeah, absolutely. So this was, this, so this like, was like 87, you know? So she was, you know, she was rapping with no... In no no female influence per se that I can remember, and uh, so and, and no intentions to get anywhere other than just have a laugh in the bedroom, you know. Going um, back to those years, you mentioned having a laugh, being a kid in those years. Do you think that hip hop helped you to process your feelings in a way that you might not have been able to prior up until that point of discovery? Yeah, I had a pretty. I mean, I love my mum and I love you know I love my stepdad, but I did have a. A pretty tumultuous upbringing, you know, up until the age of um, well, I've got to be honest, you up until I left home, really, and you know, I left home at fifteen. I just thought, fuck this, I'm going. So I think hip hop did save my life. It really did. It was, it was therapy uh, for you. Oh, absolutely, man. Well, to me, it was the only thing I had in life. I didn't have anything else, you know. I didn't ha have anything that I got attached to that, that I thought. I could be part of this and I could make this, I could make this make me better, you know, or, um, or anything like that. And I genuinely did, even as a teenager, think that. So when I went to prison, which is obviously not, I went to prison, not because I was convicted, because I broke all my bonds, you know, um, I was, I was on nine o'clock curfew. I wasn't allowed to hang out in the area. It happened. And I wasn't allowed to hang around with any of the people that were associated with it, you know, but I was caught one night in the place, past nine o'clock with all the people that I wasn't allowed to hang around with. So I broke all three of my conditions and uh, when I was 17 and they just took me straight to prison. And I was, <laughs> I can look back now and I'm not proud of it, obviously, but because it was only three months and it was just remand. And I, you know, when I went to court then, uh, I was let off, you know, 
Um, at the end of the day, it was it, it, the judge targeted me because I was a boxer and he, he classed my fists as weapons, you know. And I was like, well, I was defending a woman who was getting beaten up by a guy, like you know. Yeah. So um, I think he took sympathy sympathy with me on that, and uh, and that's why I got off. But I, I obviously did the the remand. But when I when I was in there, I couldn't. I mean, I, I was drawing hip hop, I was drawing graffiti, you know. That's all that was on my mind. Um, in fact, I did. I was the first to ever do a graffiti piece in Swansea Prison because they didn't allow it in there. And uh, it was. Um, I posted up a piece um, on my Facebook wall the other day. Um, uh, Roxy, it's a Roxy graffiti piece in uh, the local newspaper. Oh. And one of the guys for that crew, who was the first kind of Swansea graffiti crew, uh, John Sermon, he was in prison at the time as well. Um, so. You know, me being me and him being him, uh, we, we got together and we did the first ever piece in, in Swansea Prison, a graffiti piece. Um, they only let us use one can. <laughs> so all the rest was paint, you know, like uh, paint brushes and stuff. And uh, we were only allowed to use one can. It wouldn't allow us any more than that. And it was under supervision, obviously, because I suppose people do stupid things with aerosol cans, don't they? So, yeah. Um, so so much so in prison my mind was hip hop. So when I when I got when I got out, I never I I was more solidified within hip hop. I admit because of what happened to me with prison. And again, you know, if I hadn't gone to prison, maybe I still probably would have done hip hop, you know, for uh, you know, it led me on that path to be more de dedicated with hip hop, if you like. So so when I came out, not straight away, but pretty much not long after, maybe a year, two years, tops. Because it was on my mind the whole time. I wanted to know how to make hip hop music properly and not just spin, you know, spin loops back and record them. Because we did, we we did what a lot, of, a lot of other people did, which was tape loops, you know. Because we didn't have equipment, drum machines, and all this sort of stuff. We used to tape loop stuff. So we get a tape, you know, um, you know, we'd you'd have a double cassette tape, one record, one play. So you'd play a bit, record, stop, pause it, switch it go back, play, record, stop. And you have to, you know, tedious, it'd take ages, but you'd have a loop then, a, a tape loop. And that's how we got our beats. Um, so <clears throat> so that's what we had. So, I, you know, beyond that, I was like, how am I going to get equipment to make this stuff? I mean, what what do they even use, you know? <laughs> aside from seeing, <clears throat> aside from seeing stuff um, like on the cover of Mantronics' album, like the SP-1200 and things like that, we didn't know what the hell they were, you know, this, this equipment. And it wasn't sampling back then. It was just drum machines. So, so like, I, I'm never going to be able to get one of these. So it was tape loops at first. And then when I came out of prison, my mind was set on how, how do we do this? How can I get this? So within two years, I went, I went to Nottingham, uh, um, music industry management, you know, for, for four years, three years, probably. actually it was three years. Yeah. Three years. Um, uh, because that was that, in Nottingham, and I think I believe there might have been one in London, but I know there was one in either Brighton or Nottingham, an engineering course, you know, and uh, there wasn't it was there wasn't one anywhere else. So when interested in the management side of it, I just thought, well, I want to do that course. So you know, so that's how determined I was. I was, I was like, and and I thought about I didn't know about that course, but I thought about how the hell are we going to get equipment and make music and this and the other. So I'd said to Nobster at that time, who was by that point Nobster. Um, sort of late eighties, eighty nine ish, whatever. And I said, "Look, man, I know if I do this, I don't want it to be like I'm de I'm deserting us. You know, I, I want to do it for us. You know, for us to get somewhere. And I know it's going to take me three years, but I'm going to be coming back and forth and all this. You know, throughout the time I'm up there, and you come up as well." And he said, "You know what?" He said, "I was offered 
um, through Swansea, I think it was through Swansea University. And coincidentally, a guy called Paul Durden, who was the co-writer of the movie Twin Town, who we know very well as well. And he, uh, he, he said, he's, he, he mentioned to me, if, if I do this course, um, teaching kids about, about rap, you know, and, um, you know, the cult, that side of culture and hip hop and stuff like that, they pay him money and that he would put that into equipment. So he put, he put money into certain equipment and I put knowledge into that equipment. Does that make sense? So I did, yeah. I did, I did the learning of the music industry because we were pissed off in, in a, I know Root X records, that deal that we had fell through, but, um, only because the company went bankrupt within a couple of months of us having the deal. And, and then we had you know, the leader one sort of offer, um, which is bound for, and, um, you know, Simon Harris didn't make it easy at all, um, to push it through, but, you know, the leader one was great. He was a lovely guy and everything else. And, you know, he's like, I'll do what I can and stuff. Um, we were just getting pissed off because we, we felt, well, we knew we'd been treated like either like nobodies or by people or like people who, who had no knowledge about it. So they were just like, yeah, whatever. Um, so that's another reason why I thought, well, engineering and to find out about the, the music industry, how it works, this is going to be a huge benefit for us, you know? Um, so that's, those are the main reasons I went away and did that. And came, you know, when I came back, you know, I, I considered myself a full engineer. What did you learn when you came back outside of being a full engineer? Uh, well, when I came back from Nottingham, back to Swansea, yeah, um, I, I learned that the best way for us to go about anything musically, musically release-wise, was to set up an independent label and not chase major deals or deals or nothing like that. So that's when we set up Wonky Wax, um, pretty much, you know. Because um, we were like, look, let's just, you know, and if we, you know, set up Wonky Wax and, and then as we go along down the line, someone says, look, we'll, we'll give you a deal then maybe we'll take that deal. But right now, let's just not concentrate on the industry. Let's just do it ourselves. You know, basically what, what, what Blade did with, with 691 Influential, you know, um, he, he just thought, fuck the industry, I'm going to do this myself. So that's what that's the most important fact that I learned within it. It's like, it doesn't matter how much knowledge I had on the music industry, the music industry were who they were. And they, even if we got signed, there was always a chance that they'd want stuff from us that either they, they didn't tell us or that they wouldn't give us full artistic rights. So, I mean, we did try, we did try, I won't lie. We did, we did, you know, we sent, um, I can't remember some of the labels offhand, but we sent, you know, our, our steel toe and, um, and the, and the few of the tracks that we had around by that time to, uh, our vinyl solution was one. Well, I think, uh, I don't want to say quote me on this. I think gunshot were on vinyl solution at first. Um, they were definitely involved with that maybe later on, but they, uh, and, so we sent stuff to Vinyl Solution and all these sort of underground and did a Richie Rich's label spin-offs and things like that. And uh, you know we had some great replies back, but they didn't. Uh, you know we were mortal danger then. This was before, slightly before Headcase or before we decided to be Headcase. Yeah. Wonky Wax was created, and then we decided to be Headcase, if you like, you know, because um, up until up until that point we were up until Steel Toe, which was '93, we were mortal danger. Steel Toe is what. Is what made uh, is is what made us decide, right? You know, we this is nutty. This is wonky. We're yeah. edders. We're ed cases. You know, people look people look at that name and think that we psychos or nutters or fighty, but it's not. It's purely because it all relates to us being different within music. You know, wonky wax was the same. Wonky wax was like 
it's wonky. It's different. It's it's, it's you know it's it's not straight. It's not a straight shelf. It's a wonky shelf. You know, <laughs> but it still works if you like. You know, that was our concept on wonky wax, wonky, and wonkiness. And then uh, we thought, well, the name's got to sit with it as well. And um, I think it, it was an obstacle that came out with Heggy Slads, um, and I came out with wonky wax. Ah.
not 100 or 1,000 percent absolute when it comes to the timeline, you know, as in years. I might be like half a year out or a year out, year in there. Um, I, I, uh, unless I tell you, yeah, it was definitely that year. Like Steel Toe was 93. I know the years of our releases, but sometimes because certainly when Nobster was concerned, because he would move away or go and we wouldn't see him and this and that and the other and have all these breaks. Sometimes I get my years mixed up with how long he was away, you know, and how long I did stuff without him or, or whatever. Um, so, yeah, Steel Toe was 93. Wonky Wax was created in 93. Um, by that point, I'd come out of uh, university. So uh, university must have been 89, 90 for me to be there three years. So I'm trying to work it out like that, like a map in my head, you know, <clears throat> because I haven't actually diary, uh, uh, diaried it out. I did write a diary for like 22 years and I lost it. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's let's talk about Steel Toe, which, like you say, it marks this major turning point for yourselves. Nobster's no longer reluctant to use his Welsh accent. You're both leaning into everything. It encapsulates Swansea and Wales. Would you go as far to say that steel toe was the moment you felt stability musically yeah and because of knowing what i knew about the mu music industry at that point you know and, and the fact that you know and our, our tutor was amazing you know he was like um he was an ex-lawyer our music industry management teacher and um he was an ex-lawyer and he was honest with us straight up and uh he, he would say to you he would say to you look unless you get offered full artistic rights he said never mind the rights about the publishing and the rights about this and the rights about that he said if you care about your music and you want your music to be yours unless you have full artistic rights he said if you don't if you take that deal and, they, and you don't make enough money for that label they will turn you into an act that you don't want to be or they will or they will get your records sent to remixes and other genres of music that you might not like you know um uh, they will mold you into something that you would you, you weren't originally and of course that really that really sat with me when he, when he said those things so which is why we decided fuck it it's, it's not bothered about really getting signed we'll send a few you know a few demos and what have you out but if nothing happens it's not a problem because we're still going to release stuff ourselves anyway so sure. um so that was what you know we were set from there 93 um Obviously, Wonky Whack, uh, Wonky Heads, and Shonky Album, and all that was uh, was actually started being recorded in '96. So even though it was released in '98, backing up for a second, yeah, without talking about the wonky stuff, because this is an important time where you're developing your own identity, you're leaning into this identity and experimentation. What were those moments like in terms of you being your own audience and turning practice into purpose? Can you talk about that experimentation with Knobs to Nuts? Free, yeah, yeah. Um, sort of finding ourselves. You mean, like instead of Absolutely. instead of instead of following American rappers, just just being us, almost, almost like rap had never existed, but we just suddenly come up with it because obviously that's really what it was with us at that time because we'd never, you know, I think the only ones we'd heard <clears throat> with regional accents and not just regional accents, but they encompassed their local area or their patois within um within their culture whether it be jamaica or whatever um was london posse and i think uh, a couple of a couple from that you know that sort of ilk at that era and we hadn't you know and we never wanted to be us like yeah let's use a welsh accent because london posse sound like london it, it wasn't like that we just never had an influence 
or any any hip hop at that time that influenced us to make records with our own accent. In fact, we I remember sitting down and chatting with Nobson about this and saying, "Look, it's just going to really fuck us up." You know, are people just going to laugh at us because of Welsh accent, you know? You know, I mean, I don't know, with Cardiff, Cardiff's a little bit more fluent than this. Um, yeah. I mean, people, people in the past have said you've got more of a Liverpool twang than a than a Welsh twang per se, but you're more fluent. You don't, you know, you're not like, all right, but and all that, because the further you go into Wales, it becomes much more Welsh, doesn't it, you know? And Absolutely. obviously, I've lived everywhere. Around England, I've lived, you know, outside England. And um, you end, myself even, you end up, you know, you become a bit more spoken normally, fluently, you know, I'm, I'm a bit Welsher now because I've been down here for, for more years, but, but when I was younger, you know, it was probably like that, like, you know, and, and, and then of course Lou, Tlenechli, which is the, the further town down again, he's outright Welshy sounding, you know? So with us, we, you know, Wenglish, there's even a dictionary in the local museum called Wenglish, which, which, you know, uh, d- directly relates from Swansea, which is the crossover between um, English and Welsh. Um, where where words are, are brought together, you know, three words are brought together into one. So when people think we speak fast, um, it's not that we speak in fast. We just put three words into one. Like instead of saying um, "I haven't seen you for ages," we'll say "I've seen you for ages," you know, uh, which makes one word instead of three words or four words. You know, so that's Wenglish. And, and the reason that comes about, and it says in the dictionary, is because of the of the London connection where and where it uh, where it ended M four with Swansea. Because the M4 ends at Swansea, right? And uh, and then uh, I, I don't know why it missed Cardiff in that sense. Because obviously you, you guys, I mean, maybe years ago you were a bit more Welsh speaking, but you know, for me, Cardiff's always been more fluent. You know, you'd be much more understandable, less Welsh accent than than further into Wales, if you like. Um, so yeah, so with us, we were scared. We were like, shall we do this? You know, because and the reason we talked about it and just actually discussed it. Is because we'd visually seen it and heard it with people who used to come around to, you know, bedsit. Because obviously we had a track on Shonky's album called Bedsits and Flats, because uh, that that track was purely about the fact that we we all grew up and lived in our own little bedsits and flats. You know, we didn't have houses or none of that shit. And obviously some still live with their parents or whatever. But so we were in, in the bedsits and uh, jamming, getting together, having a, having a hook up. Waking up one morning, you know, like say maybe yourself, you gotta get together with the boys and all watch movies, you know, some retro movies, whereas we get together and have a jam, you know. And um, excuse me, yeah. So the people that would come around weren't hip hoppers. We weren't into hip hop because, like I said, there was only a few in Swansea were like, you know, hardcore to it or, or dead set to it. Um, we had Alfie and, and Keith and M doing the Space Space, which was originally Bubba Club, and then went to Space Clay, Space Space. And then you had us then, who, um, because we were dead set on releasing some records, you know, we, you know, we would, you know, when we would jam, the ones who were into hip hop, we would create little demos or jam tapes, or and we would swap them around with the boys from Bont who were into hip hop. But they didn't really do jams or nothing at that time. They were just loving hip hop, and uh, and they, they, you know, we gave them some jam tapes. They'd give us some tapes that they had from, you know, from hip hop from America that we couldn't get, etc. So, so our influence. Or the first signal, the first green light for us to go, do you know what, let's do this, which blew us away, was um, was normal people, normal, the average pub goer, the average, the average piss head, whatever, um, completely normal people that weren't into anything other than just getting up in the morning, going to work, coming home, going out for a pint in the weekend, 
um, getting up on the mic because they just because the buzz was there and we were having a laugh. They were like, "Yeah, give me the fucking mic." I mean, like, "Yeah, go on in, this just you rap in and you." And they had no preconceptions that they wanted to be a rapper. Right. You know, they weren't like, "I'm going to try and be like Ella Cool J." And they didn't even know who the fuck these rappers were. So they would just be themselves completely and utterly. And of course, when we heard that, like the one the one main guy, he's passed away now. God rest his soul. But the one main guy. Was a guy called uh, Amos, um, and he got on the mic and blew me in Novice's mind. You know, I've still got the tape because um, I fucking that's one thing I do is document. You know, over everything and everyone I know, I document as much as I possibly can. You know, it's it's, uh, it's like an OCD habit of mine. I got thousands of photos and and uh, dot I document people's lives through videos, and I used to carry a camcorder around with me, and you know, all this sort of stuff. So, so. I got a tape of him and that jam, but he just gets on the mic and he's just completely himself. Like I said, no inhibitions to be anything other than himself and have a laugh. And he was, you know, his accent came out, the Swansea accent came out and it just sounded right. You know, his words might not be the most, you know, phenomenally lyrically flowing, mm. but because he had no preconceptions, he was just being him. It was amazing. You know, I, I, if I'd taken that rhyme or if he'd done it longer and put a beat over it and put it through a professional studio and everything else, it probably would have sold as a record or something. You know, it was that authentic, you know, it, it, was, it was a level of authenticity. You're talking about. Yeah. You know, he wasn't going you know, like when you, a lot of MCs, you know, a lot of MCs I've met, a lot of MCs we work with who came down with us. You know, I won't mention names because I don't want to make it out like they were they were shit at what they did because they're all great at what they did. But they came, you know, a few came down to Mike Yatam and um, and before then as well to record with us, and they were just like, oh man, you know, because the size of the studio, like sixty four track desk and these fucking all this glitzy glamorous. But and, and we were like, look, man, <laughs> fuck all that shit. You know, if you want to do it in the fucking you know in the bin section or the back, we can do that. We don't give a shit about this studio. Like we just here because we here. So, um, so I kind of got that. It, it, it can be scary when you go in a big studio. Your mind is set on being as perfect as you can. But these guys, you know, none of that existed in their minds. They were like, "Fuck, I don't give a shit." You know, I'm just going to be me and have a laugh. And that's what made us look at it and think, you know what? Wow, that's what we want to be. We want to do that. And and at that point, we realised because up until that point, we thought about it. We thought should we use our accents and all that because it was obviously from. Uh, 90 to 91, we're ripping up a rule book came out. And uh, when I say came out, we didn't release it, but it was a proper studio track and all that. And we sent it away for demos and, and uh, for potential record label stuff or whatever. And um, yeah, so it was about 89 we recorded it, actually. We recorded it 89 um, in someone's studio, like uh, a professional engineer's studio, but it was like in his house. Um, you know, a lovely guy. He'd only ever uh, engineered... Uh, European pop stars like Shah and all that up to that point, but he was a lovely guy. And yeah, we you know we found out about him because we were asking about, do you know any studios on Swansea we can record? Do you know any studios we can record? Because they were few and far between, you know, back then. And uh, we came across him. He was a postman. He was. And we came across him through um, a friend who was a pisshead who lived in his his village. We said, yeah, I know a guy, he's a postman. He got a studio up the road. Mm-hmm. And that was how we, we thought, fuck, you know, not cheeky, but we were four and we thought, well, fuck it, let's just go knock his door. 
So that's, what, so that's what we did. He didn't know we were two little kids, two young kids, you know, late teens. Saying, "No, oh, can we record?" He was like, "Do," and he was like, "What do you do?" He said, "Rap." Oh yeah, I read, I read a rap. He said, "I'm not really. I don't read mixed rap here, but yeah, it costs blah 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 this much an hour or this much a day." And if you want to, yeah, yeah, no, he was really lovely and bubbly and nice guy. So when we started doing the stuff with him, um, we didn't go in and just do the demo. We went in and um, you know we got the ideas at home because we didn't have equipment. We had to use his equipment. So if he had a drum machine here and there, whatever, we had to try and get hip-hop beats out of him. You know, we didn't have a sampler, none of that sort of stuff. Um, at least not to the extent that, you know, the, the big wigs were using anyway. You know, we'd, uh, you know, rusty up some stuff together and, and whatnot. But we I mean, we had the decks and and whatnot. So we, we, we made it, you know, pretty much in his studio, you know, um, uh, those early, early demos. And he was just a random guy. He was a random postman, like I said. <laughs> You recorded a lot of music. There's so many demos of music being recorded at this point in time. Was it ever challenging to tell a good idea from a bad idea when you're recording as much as you were? How did you measure that quality bar? Um, through friends, I think, passing stuff around and, and getting, their, um, getting their reactions and opinions on it. Because I was, I was... I was doing so much, you know, I, I was making so much, scratching so much, you know, I don't know if you saw the picture I posted of the, of the cassette the tapes. tapes. Yep. Um, you know, Nobster says in a couple of magazine interviews, we had like 90 C90 tapes or 70, 70 C90 tapes full of jams. Now, obviously that could sound amazing to some people, but a lot of that on them tapes was shit, you know, or just us fucking about or whatever. But, to, to me, that I, I was lost in it to the point where I couldn't decide. You know, I, I genuinely we were making this. I was making the beats, making the beats, making the beats, scratches, this and, that and the other. You know, because a lot of them jam tapes are not necessarily full of MCs or knobs of rapping or whatever. You know, the, a lot of them are beats. You know, are jams and beats that were to become um, or were the idea to become um, tracks. But I, I was lost in it, and I, I needed. You know, I, this is the other thing as well. Even though I might be a driving force, I'm not a driving force for myself. Does that make sense? Uh, when I'm on my own, I just, I, I just, I wouldn't say I don't want to do it. I just feel lost. I'm a people person. Do you know what I mean? So, um, and I was back then as well, you know, because we were always together, hooking up, jamming, and we would, you know, like the saying, two, two heads are better than one sort of thing, you know. Right. So I, I would I would really heavily rely on, you know, Nicky P, D-Rock, you know, Jay, he was called Jay Bass at the time. He's called Elements Raw now. Um, Jay, um, uh, and the people who really loved and knew hip-hop and knew what it was, I really heavily relied on their opinion as to some, whether something was banging or whether something was uh, was going to work or not, you know. They might not have always given that opinion, which is probably why there's so many tapes. <laughs> if I'd done one tape with, like, I don't know, 20 beats on, and they'd said all of them had given a solid opinion on that tape, then maybe we, we could have I could have picked out tracks and we could have had an album by 92 or 93. So they didn't always express their opinions. This is why I kept making, 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 making stuff because I just I was just unsure whether they would have, you know, these beats would have been viable to to do anything with, you know. So 
Yeah, so and and, and same with Henke stuff later on, you know, I'd make stuff on it, and the reactions of people hearing it when when we were jamming it. Oh, I know my oh my word, that beat, oh that loop, man, oh, and and that would be enough to, for me to then set that loop aside and go right winner, you know, and I I would I would write that as well on the on the on the sample um, disc or whatever winner winner um, because I knew I had a good reaction off someone with it. But a lot of them don't really have that on, and not because they're not winners, because there was no one around to really get to really say to me, um, "Oh, that's fucking awesome," or, or you know, you weren't I, getting that validation. Not from everything, no. Which is why, yeah. which is why I had so much, or we had so many tapes. Um, like I said, so, um, and because you know, we kind of we had our own lives as well. We weren't living in each other's pockets, you know. When I was doing stuff in the bedroom, in my bedroom, I was you know, obviously kind of on my own, you know, do it, just constantly make, and that's the thing with producers and DJs, we, we do tend to do that. Um, you know, rappers, I guess as well, you know, they're in the bedroom, they've got the headphones on, they're writing in the notepads. It doesn't always happen when we all get together for jams. Right. The jam side of it, I think, and this is, I think it's just synonymous with, with certainly with my life in music, you know, from Headcase, go Boy, Hip Hop, every bit of music I've been involved with, um, it's been, um, is the feeding off the vibe of other people when you when you jam in or when you're doing it, you know? Um, many a time we would be jamming and we chuck something on and we'd know straight away just by everyone in the room not really getting down on it, you know, that it wasn't working. So then out comes the tape, right, bang another one in or make another loop or whatever until everyone's like, whoa, that isn't, oh my God, that's the one. And then, of course, you'd know... You know, to go with that, but when you're on your own, you, you you haven't got that, you know. And especially as a producer, um, or even a DJ, you know, when you're there on your own and you're doing it over and over and over again, it becomes so monotonous in your head that you actually do lose, um, any sort of recognition of whether it's all right or good, or whether you're doing a good job or is it shit. Or my, you know what I mean? Uh, because you haven't got someone there saying, "You man, look, that is the fucking business." Um, so. It, it, hip hop, and I think that's hip hop across the board. You know, certainly in where it where it where it stemmed from in New York and all that. It all happened because of the get together of people. You know, you know, Cool Herc might have blasted his shit out of the, out of the you know, out of uh, Cedric Avenue flat windows and whatnot, but that didn't create hip hop. All he did was create the spark for everyone to come together. To then create hip hop, you know what I mean? Yeah. Without the everyone coming together, there's no hip hop. So, so I think an important part of hip hop is the sharing, the, culture, the cultural, yeah, the cultural connective energy that you know that created the four elements. You know, um, the break in MC and DJ and um, Graph. I mean, Graph. Obviously, that's a whole other. You know, people debate about that, but you know, for me, it is part of the four elements in hip hop because that's what I grew up with it in but you know some graph writers will debate that and say look graffiti was about way before hip-hop came about and then you could say well so was breakdancing breakdancing was fucking in africa before it was breakdancing over here you know so but what i'm talking about the four elements within what hip-hop culture became regardless of what they were before that they they were absolutely they needed the necessity of people coming together without the people coming together those things don't didn't work or won't work as well, you know? You could sit in your room for the rest of your life and, you know, and try and make hip-hop beats with no one around you on your own and no influence, and it'll show. The same with soul and everything, though, isn't it? You know, all, all those hardships, all those 
all those times, blues, all that, those people weren't necessarily on their own doing it. They were they were hooking up with other people that were lonely. Does that make sense? Or going through hardships. And then they created these jams, jazz jams, blues jams. And then they created all that music. So you had the hardships, which we had, obviously being in an all-boys school and, you know, being in a, you know, rough rough neighbourhoods without, you know, without really any culture attached to them. And then finding that, you know, that new music and that culture attached to it and just embracing it. It's mad with Swansea, though, because it was like, when we were growing up, it was probably like one black guy in Swansea, you know? Um, well, one black guy that I ever saw in my life up until late teens, yeah. And his name was Saul. He used to work in Walker's Crisps. And I chased him around. I was so fascinated by him because I'd never seen a black guy before other than on a record or whatever. <laughs> and I chased him. I didn't chase him. I followed him and he stopped. He said, oh, you follow me. Bit of a Jamaican accent on him. And I said, and I was only young and I was only like mid-teens, late teens. And I said, yeah, sorry. He said, I'm really sorry. I panicked. And I said, look, I know this is going to sound really weird now, but I love black music. And I, I, I just can't get any anywhere. You know, can you, can you get, can you help me out? And that man gave me like four funk tips. And a jazz tip, you know what I mean? He could have just told me to fuck off. Like, he said, Look, I work in Waters Crisp. Waters Crisp was there, and I lived like five minutes down the road. I said, I just lived down the road, but there, how can I get these tapes off you? And he said, Right, I'm, I come to work this way every day. I said, Tomorrow I will bring some tapes and you can come meet me here. And I met him and he gave me four funk tapes. So that's the first black I ever met. And um, up until that point, you know, I, I wouldn't say my parents are racist, but it's, you know, you've got, you've got errors of new and in cities that are predominantly white or whatever. They, you know, they, they're not intentionally racist. It's just like in mainstream bullshit media and, and all that. And, and, and obviously what the, what the government and governments and God knows whatever else, you know, media push out to the people in, you know, in whatever way. And people and parents of old, you know, grandparents are the worst, worst again. Oh, get that black person away or whatever. But I never paid attention to any of it, you know, and uh, I was absolutely fascinated by, by black culture from from a young teenage age, you know. Um, well, actually, Madness was my first record, Complete Madness, when I was, uh, I think I was eight years old. But I had it bought for me because I was taking it to John Menzies and uh, my mum said, right, what record do you want? And, of course, as a kid that age, you know, with all the records on the wall, what record am I going to pick? Madness, because they're all looking nutty as fuck on the cover. And I'm like, that record, but I want that. And, of course, what's, what music is Madness? Scar, you know, which is black music, essentially. Um, so that was the first, you know, for me <clears throat> of that. My parents had, like, you know, um, they, you know, they loved a lot of black culture, a lot of black music, but, you know, they loved Tom Jones and and Irish music and all that shit as well. So they weren't really stuck in anything in particular, really. But um, so I used to I used to pinch the black culture records out of my dad's collection, you know, um, um, you know, early funk, some some stuff like that. Because he didn't really have a wide range. But um, but yeah, that's a story about how I first met met the first black man in the flesh, and how he gave me funk and jazz tips. And um, yeah, I, I kind of like I met him a good few times following that, and I even met him. Because my he's worked in Walker's Crisp for years, and my cousins later on worked in Walker's Crisp, and I met him again. And when I met him, he hugged me and he said, "My God, you can remember that? Wow!" He said, "Wow!" And he said, "Oh, do you know what?" And he shook shook my hand. And he hugged me and he said, "Wow!" He said, "Do you know what? You make me proud." You know, because I can imagine to him living in a predominantly white city. I have no doubt he he was given shit by a lot of people. I have no doubt at all. And to, for him to see a, a random white kid, not a man, a kid, you know, be influenced by 
something that came from from his cult, you know, his colours culture. Um, I would have been proud of that, you know, most certainly. He, he told me he was, you know, but um, yeah. So, so, so that's the story of me, you know, um, sort of at that era getting into a wider range of music. It's obviously sample based stuff, and, and you know, and or where music where. But there was the sample, the later stuff, you know, the late 80s stuff came from and whatnot, you know. All of which, of course, is very informative on what would later on come with your Wonky Wax Head Case Lads debut. What was the starting point for Wonky Eds? Well, when we did Steel Toe in 93, um, after sort of um, hooking up with, you know, I say hooking up, having these jams where you would have local heads come in and whatnot. And we, that at that point, fully realised that we can do this. We can use our access and it does work. And it doesn't sound shit. And we don't sound like fucking Ruth, Ruth Maddock on Heidi High and blah de blah you know? It's just going to work. No offence to Ruth Maddock, rest in peace, uh, you beautiful soul. Um, love Heidi High, but you know what I mean? They're very, very Welsh accent and we just didn't know if it would work. And we didn't want to be put into a category of that either, you know? We wanted people to see us for who we were within hip-hop, not you know, compare us to other fucking Max Boyce or something like that, you know what I mean? You know, as legendary as he is as well, but you know what I mean? Uh, we wanted to just be the hip-hop side of, of the Welsh sort of rap. But um, from Steel Toe, when we made that, it, the reason it took us, you know, a good few years, when Nobson moved to Bristol, um, he had, you know, he, I, think, uh, I think it was around about the time that him and Sarah split up because they'd been together since we were teenagers. Uh, Sweet Pea, the one that did the won the the record deal, and we won the single deal. And he split up with her, and I think he'd had enough of Swansea at that point, you know, and uh, he just wanted to go away. So because he lived in Bristol, he had he had some some family in Bristol. Um, when we were now teens, going back to what I was saying about him going away, and then me and Jazz doing it, um, he he then he went to Bristol to work, um, <clears throat> which you know I joined him later on. Um, because I had enough of Swansea as well. And uh, we, uh, I had a ghetto blaster, which uh, pretty much was a kind of, uh, I think, uh, given the ghetto blaster to, to, uh, to captain, to, to put in the museum for next year, because um, it's what we it's what we made. But it, it was the nice. start of Wonky Edge, you know, um, and all that, because we would be up um, Redland Park, and uh, an Ashton Court at the top and stuff with the ghetto blaster because it had a mic input in it and I could record on it as well. So I could play an instrument in the one tape, record on the other tape, microphone input in there. And obviously I wouldn't be doing cuts, but I would be the one making the beats and stuff in, you know, while I was living up there uh, by St. Paul's. But um, yeah, so that would that was the start really of the all the initial ideas that became the Shonky album and the and the Wonky Heads album, you know, when we did then move back to Swansea. So that's why there was a gap between Steel Toe and the release of our first album. So at leading up to Steel Toe, went to music industry management to figure out about the industry. Obviously, little did I know that when I came back and obviously it would be you know, too emotionally head fucked to really make music. So he went to Bristol. So that's that's the only reason that gap happened. I think if if that hadn't happened, then um, we could uh, Wonky Edge probably wouldn't exist. But a version of Wonky Edge would have come a lot sooner, you know. Um, so all yeah. all of that era from '93 Steel Toe up to Wonky Edge, um, which was you know actually firstly being recorded in a studio, like the grassroots stuff, the videos and all that with cars and all that. All that was '96 '97. 
um, but Wonky Edge was released in ni- was in ninety eight. So even though the album didn't actually take us two years to make, it was an amalgamation of from ninety three to ninety six of all the ideas that we'd had. You know, um, literally pretty much all the tracks, maybe not every track, but all the tracks, certainly the titles or the concepts or the ideas, they were all jammed on that ghetto blaster, you know, in Bristol, uh, between me and Nobster. Um, and when we came back then, um, and we would, you know, got back to jamming and doing stuff like that, uh, we met, um, we met F, um, I think we met F on a bit in between, you know, because we'd obviously come back and forth to Swansea when I was working up there and, he, and obviously was working up there. Uh, I chefed at Bristol Airport and um, I can't remember what not. Yeah, he, and obviously was there as well doing something in Bristol Airport. I can't remember what. I think he was on he was on the packing of all the all the jewellery and all that that goes on the planes because they all have to get put in secure boxes and all that stuff. So he was doing that. Which was uh, which was highly guarded, security oriented shit, you know. So I couldn't see him really in work much, um, and I was doing all the staff meals for Bristol Airport and all the the fresh cakes that went on the planes. Um, so that's why we were up the job wise. But of course, afterwards, then we'd be at the park hanging out uh, over each other's bedsits or whatever we live in, and going to places like Cozy, uh, Cozy's, which was like a hip hop calf up there um that's when i first met banksy as well like robin uh, and a lot of other people um two row all these guys you know early aspects before they were aspects all that sort of stuff um but yeah so of course then he got more influence then, and we see in that side of that culture up there early on too maybe not 80s early on but certainly 90s because it was some good shit coming out in the 90s of bristol and uh that was spouting us to just you know and we I think we both realised, like, if we, we could, you know, we could stay up here and make music up here, but you know, let's get back to what, kind of get back to where, where we, where we were going when we left here, you know, um, and then and kick it back off again. So that's what, yeah. So that's what we did. We we kind of pretty much both decided to come back, um, if, even if we didn't come back at the exact same time, it was within weeks or a couple of months of each other. Um, but during that period of being at Bristol, that's when we, you know, we were back for or nipping up Cardiff, and because we had the vibe more, to, you know, to meet more people and seeing these other people in Bristol and doing it like this and that. Let's, let's get back, and then we speak to people, meet people through Cardiff, uh, through grassroots, this and that and the other, or, or someone would um, we, we'd order like or get a record from um, someone and. You'd have a flyer in it that was obviously like spin-offs, Richie Rich and all that. When we'd order records from up there. Um, it was always about a lot of flyers in the, in the in the record package, you know, that would get that was sent from all over the country, from different crews or different areas or different scenarios or whatever. And I'm sure that's how we were at least partly introduced to. Uh, uh, I think his name was J B, not J B, J B, J B, Scottish rapper that F, um, F meaning Junior Dispo, um, and Cuz uh, hooked up with just before they did the underground tape. So that guy, Scottish rapper um, and, and Scottish DJ, whatever, um, they hooked up with them and that's what led to them, um, at least to some extent, doing uh, the underground tape, I think it was called, was it? I have still got it here somewhere, but uh, that was the, that was Matt, right. uh, Junior Dispol and Cuz's first release on cassette tape, the underground tape. So they were the first to release, you know, I suppose, aside from Jaffa, previously in the 80s with, uh, with MC Eric and stuff, they were the first to release a hip-hop that I know 
you know, hip hop LP, like if you know, or it was an EP when it was an EP sure. um, on cassette. But then we were the first to release vinyl, certainly independently, anyway. With Wonky Edge, which came later, which is a bit of a shame, really, because you know, all these years go by and you've got so many people and crews doing stuff, but nobody's. And that's, you know, going, I, I'm going back now to what I was saying about the music industry management side of things, you know. It's like, um, I think if more of us had more of a, a, a more clued up on the industry, I think a lot more of us could have had releases a lot early on. But we were, we were all finding our feet. And of course, we didn't have in Wales, not just Swansea, Cardiff, we didn't have what London had. You know, everybody looked to London the name, and they, and sometimes they still do to some degree, but certainly not like it was then. Everybody looked to London. You've got all your imports, your records. You know, pretty much all the crews are from there, or most of the crews. You know, or at least most of the crews that everybody knew were out. So, so when when F and uh, and Cuz did that, I think again that was another. That was another kick in the ass for us to say, look, it's fucking time, man. It was time two years ago. Like, what the fuck are we doing? Like, <laughs> so, um, so, but we were hanging with them when they were doing that as well. So, so we, we, we just like, what the fuck are we waiting for? So that was a couple of years, maybe two, two or three years before Wonky Ends came out. that was the kick in the answer that um, I knew we were to do it, but I couldn't, at least I felt I couldn't do it without an officer at that time. You know, um, I didn't know any other MCs that, you know, because um, even though graffiti artists and MCs and DJs would hook up, you would rarely find intercity hookups, you know, uh, back then, certainly not in Wales, you know, so to see, you know, Kaz and Matt, um, hook up with these Scottish lads, like, you know, to, to us, it was like, wow, it's fucking mind-blowing. That is just fucking inspiring. great. Yeah. Yeah, it, it yeah. was inspiring, of course, yeah. So so we were like, well, let's do shit with other people. So not only did it allow me to go, do you know what? If Nomster doesn't, you know, sort of pick up the pace here and just, and just you know, agree that this is what we want to do and what we're going to do, I'm going to end, I will end up finding another MC, which even though, even though we, sorry, even though we didn't, like, split up or anything like that at that time, it was another... Uh, I will put this down to Matt and the inspiration I had of him doing that, uh, that, that tape and cuz of course, um, uh, for, for me to find, uh, or, or bring in under our wing, other MCs. And, um, I, I found Sean Lee through his cousin who I was going out with and she said, Oh, my cousin raps and all that. Uh, but when he turned up, he was, he had an American accent and he was rapping, you know, rapping like fucking or trying to rap like LL Cool J and everything, you know? And I was like, Whoa, stop, cut that off there now. Right. Have you heard our stuff? Oh, jams, yeah. So, right. Have you heard any LL Cool J style raps on there? No. <laughs> you know, so, so I was like, look, we are us. This is what we do. Wonky ears, wonky wax. Well, not wonky ears, wonky wax. The wonky concept is purely based on us being ourselves. So that's what you do. But Sean, he always had it. He always had that fire burning inside him. He just he just never should or been told by anyone to just be yourself. Don't copy anyone. Be yourself. So I didn't have to teach him shit. All I had to do was tell him to be yourself. And within a day, 
you know, he came in the morning, let's say, for example, he was rapping like, you know, yo, what's up, man, and all that. And by the by the night, he was fucking going, all right, man, shongy boy, fucking man, you know. He was completely himself. He was a natural, absolute natural. And, and it was, just, well, Boswell wasn't really a rapper at that time. He was a shongy's mate. But he, you know, he, he had the he had the innate ability to, to 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 do it as well, and he and he and he could, you know. Uh, but Shonky was the epitome of it for me, and he was like, "Fuck, man!" I was like, "You are more Swansea than Knobster is," you know. Uh, Knobster is like to me. Um, I think if he had more lung power, he would be like the be real of Wales, you know, because his accent is so like you know. Mm. Not not his accent, sorry, his his vocal tone. It's kind of very nasally. Um, and it's not powerful, you know. But Shongi's voice was powerful and quite overwhelming. Um, so he was much more punchy, whereas Knobster, and, and uh, again, the same with mics, whether it be recording or live or whatever, we always had to have, him, have people turn his mics up because he just didn't have the lung power uh, that Shongi had. Um, so, yeah, Matt and Cuz influenced us enough for us to, to kick us in the off. Even though there's a little gap between that and our Wong Ez release, we were doing it pretty much straight after, you know? Straight after they did that tape, we started, we actually, we were in grassroots, we started recording the album. But because of ins and outs of life and, you know, certain people like not turning up, or, you know, mention names like, but people just don't turn up and then you have to fucking, and then I have to go back to being the driving force again and say, right, come on, are you fucking doing this or not, you know? Um, and uh, uh, that was the reason why you know it, it took a few years to do that. Um, yeah, but uh, hats off to Matt and Cuz uh, for, for for doing that. So of course, when we were going to re- release the vinyl of it, we were like, we've got to get you guys on it. You are part of who we were. Uh, the Killer Whales thing came, I suppose, later, but only as a concept because we were a crew, and we thought, well, look, you know, you were Matt and F uh, underground. Um, even though it was the underground tape, I don't even know if they had a crew name at the time. I don't think they did. Um, but you were you were sort of that crew over there. We had this crew over here. Why 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 aren't we one big crew? And uh, I do you know what I'm sh- I think it might have been Cuz that came up with Killer Whales because I, I can tell you now I don't think I came up with it. Um, I can't remember coming up with it at all. I'm sure it was DJ Cuz that came up with Killer Whales, uh, the Killer Whales concept. You know, um, but people people kind of came in and out of that. You know, so it was never like, oh yeah, we this is us seven of us, we are killer wheels. It was just whoever got involved with us, you know. Um, at the time that was from Wales, you know. Uh, and that would come up and jump on a gig or do this or do that. There's a few people that came in, did some stuff with us. When we uh, I wouldn't say release stuff, but yeah, when we when we did jams or we were uh, putting stuff out there, whatever. It, they were killer whales, but they were very, they were killer whales for a short period because they were kind of in and out, you know? So, so were, for anybody that doesn't know, who made up the killer whales? Um, again, I'm trying to think of, you know, it was definitely Matt. I know you saw the models I put online by Mark Williams. Yeah. Um, I mean, he, at that period, he made them because that's who, were, you know, we were the, we were the amounts. We had Boswell, Shonky, Cuz, F, and myself. Um, so we were the, you know, we were the solid, we were the people in in that side of of hip hop in Cardiff, grassroots, that era recording that were doing it the most, you know, for us. Like, you know, I'm sure there were other people doing it here and there, but you know, as a crew of of MCs, producers, DJs, artists, that was most of us. But other people did come in. I mean, Jaffa came in, and we considered him a part of Killer Whales at one point. 
you know, but he of course had his own thing going on. So, so it depends on who was involved in within that era from Matt's underground tape uh, up until Chongy's release, which just came after Hank's release. Got it. And then, and then, and then that was the end of Killer Whales. But it was no one discussed the end of Killer Whales. It was just like we all just got on with our own thing. Then you know, it wasn't like, yeah. oh, Killer Whales is over, man. It was, it was just like, it was just a, Killer Whales was just a group of people together in a period of time uh, because right. we just happened to be from Wales and. I'm, I, like I say, I'm convinced, and I, I'll, have, I'll have to maybe if I can get older, because one day maybe I'll have to ask him, was it you that actually came up with uh, Killer Whales? Because it wasn't me. I'm convinced it was Cuz. It might have been Matt. You know, I, I'm not sure, but it, I'm, I'm convinced it was Cuz because, and he came up with it because of that. Because we were all together, and obviously it's a great name in in the context of Wales, and obviously Killer Whales, as in orcas. You know. Um, so yeah, we were like, yeah, fuck it, let's do that. Plus, at the time, we we were we were getting offered gigs away because people had people had you know we were getting reviews. Um, well, obviously, Cuz was getting reviews on on Matt um, with the underground tape, and then um, before Wonky Heads was out, we were sending demos of Wonky Heads out. So we were probably sending demos of Wonky Heads out ninety uh, seven, and um, and then people were getting back to us. Oh, you've got to do a gig up here, man, Sheffield, and you've got to do this and you go to that. So we we were having gigs away, you know, in in other cities and other countries, and we and 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 uh, I think that solidified us saying, yeah, fuck it, well, because it's, it's all of us, you know, um, like the Sheffield gig, the Boardwalk, and uh, Ponana with uh, with New Flesh for Old and all that. We didn't want to say head kiss lads. Because it was it wasn't just us, you know, because people were on stage with us that weren't in the Haggis lads. So we thought, well, let's not advertise it really as the Haggis lads. One or two of the gigs were, but that wasn't really, you know, that was the people who the promoters who put it on, and they and when we turned up, they, were, they that's what they'd done, and we were like, well, we thought we were going to put Hag Killer Whales, or they put Haggis lads, and then underneath and Killer Whales, and then the rest of the crew, like, but yeah. Um, so uh, the gigs and things like that, you know, we call ourselves Killer, Killer Whales in Grassroots Studio as a laugh, you know. It was nothing like, yeah, right, and we didn't sit down and and go, right, we are Killer Whales, guys, you know. The concept was come up, and then when the when the gigs came around, we thought, well, we might as well use this because we're all doing it. Yeah. Um, you know, we sort of all went with it, it just went with the flow. It, was, it, was, it wasn't a meeting over it or nothing, you know. It really goes back to that collective energy you were talking about earlier. Yeah, absolutely. I mean... Uh, the Wonky Edge album uh, was created by everyone who's on it. You know, most albums you get a guest. All right, let's forget about nowadays because most guests on albums nowadays, the people who make any albums have never met the fucking guest. It's all through online and all that, you know. Um, or they paid someone to be on there or whatever. But but back then, it was none of that shit. You wouldn't have people from other other cities. Like Jay, uh, uh, when Matt and Cuz did that album, Jay, I can't remember the other guy's name now, um, I feel a bit rude about that, but because I've still got his tape. But um, they came down from Scotland, you know. Um, you know, they met the boys, and um, I mean, cousin Matt may have even gone up to Scotland and meet them. But I know they came down, so it wasn't just a. It wasn't like I mean, there's no internet then, so you couldn't really do it. You know, through the post, you can't meet people through the post, can you? You can kind of half meet people online now, or you can, or you can do Skypes or whatever, but. Back Different then, you, you had to meet people. You had to hook up with people if you were going to do something with someone, you know? Yeah. Um, so, of course, there was that energy then of people coming together, um, which, going back to what I said earlier on, it, it creates it, creates whatever you're doing, whether it's the breakdancing, whether it's the graffiti, whether it's the, 
the MCA and whether it's the DJ, you feed off others to make yourself better. Um, so yeah, absolutely. Killer Whales was, uh, and the Wonky Heads album, and even the Shonky album, you know, it wasn't Headcase. It wasn't Shonky. You know, every one of those releases should have just been called Killer Whales because they all they all put into it, you know? They all put into that album. Even though I was a driving force, certainly behind the stuff that we did, um, you know, it, because I don't think I think if I wouldn't have pushed people to turn up at the jams, or if I wouldn't have booked Grassroots Studio, or if I wouldn't have, you know, booked the press in plant or whatever, it would just never have happened. You had to have a driving force of someone uh, being pushy enough to to actually get things done, or actually say, or to say to people, look, do you want to do this, or do you not want to do this? Because if it if it wasn't that if it wasn't for me, or if it wasn't for someone else who was a driving force somewhere else, those things just would never come about. This is, you know, that's fact, you know, across the board with everybody, you know, hip hop crews, hip hop acts, you know, LL Cool J, you know, he might, he, I don't know, I'm just giving an example. He might not have been the driving force within everything that was released for him, you know, it might have been, um, you know, one of the, uh, Earl, you know, it might have been Earl, you know, who knows, <clears throat> but it would have been one of them, you know, um, you know, cut creator, whatever. It would have been one of them. It probably was him. I'm just giving an example. You know, sure. you wouldn't have had all of them that would have been the driving force. You know, one of them would have to be the driving force to push the others to get on with stuff. Um, otherwise, you, you know, people just start falling by the wayside. You know, and start life starts getting in the way, and you don't take things as seriously. Um, so that's kind of been me uh, up until I don't know. Not wonky ends per se, and not not get a life album per se, but um, certainly up until um, 2012, um, where I I met who was my my ex now and had my daughter and all that. Um, that's when I just sort of I didn't sit there and decide right, I've given up hip hop. I've always made dribs and drabs, and I've always uploaded this and that and the other. But it's just a different era. It's a different feeling. It's a different. Um, it's a different thing going on now. Like I say, loads of people hook up online. You know, not many people meet anymore. So, you know, all these guest slots are done by people send, you know, they, they rap in their bedroom and they send it, the WAV to them. It's, you know, it's different. Yeah. It's not the same. Yeah. It's not the same to me, you know, as, as it was in, in what the culture started out to be. You know, I, I like to hook up with people and to do stuff in the flesh, um, uh, which doesn't happen any nowhere near as much as it should, really. But then you know, it's not going to make me stop it. I still, you know, I've still got. I mean, I got something in the pipeline now, um, an album which is pretty much finished, which has got like twelve guests on it. You know, from America, American people in America to people all over the UK that are famous within hip hop. But I just, you know, it's it's a couple of years old and it's not entirely finished. But um, um, I will get it finished. It's just um, I think if I put the idea out there now that I'm going to do it. And then it takes years again. People just forget about it, you know? So I haven't told anybody yet. So that's an exclusive, that is. <laughs> Dubious fuck shirts, balls blow bubble gum. 
I'm not just a spud gun. Watch her up with Kaiser's production. Rips tracks make wack exchange careers. You stay in the rats kissing in our ass. We kick like a mule, prepare for the do. The end is now you're getting radio wonky on your golden light. So fuck off and die. Turn out the lead. Style like pants in your head. What are your recollections of recording absurdisms and elevating your production to new heights with that project specifically? Do you have any stories from yeah, that time okay, 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 flipping from obviously Wonky Edge Chonky because we didn't do anything from then, which was 97, um, well, 98 release. And then, of course, we did the gigs, so 98, 99. Um, I couldn't say that we did any gigs 2000. And then we had that, there was that lull, um, for me, main reason being again, Knobster, knapsack on your back, off on the road, where's Knobster, where's Knobster, trying to ring up, ring up, ring up. He was going through his own shit, his own problems, and he he deals with it in his own way, in that way, you know. Um, and I you know, I, I don't know, never resent him for that, resented him for that. Um, he would just pick off, but I, at that period, because of what, happened prior in the context of us spending so many years to try and get our own shit out there um and him having a break and all that uh but not sitting down saying i'm having a break man just disappearing you know <laughs> i couldn't, couldn't find him couldn't get because there's no mobile phones then so it'd be like who do i fucking ring where is he really frustrating so so he went after what not straight after one years we did the, obviously the sheffield gigs and we did that you know we did a little uk tour of sorts um, I played in Bristol and and uh, in Cardiff and and whatever, and then it sort of went went a bit quiet. But I, and I don't know what the reason is, but Nobs says Ed one in the right place or whatever. So he he was off on the road and we couldn't find him. And because, like what I was saying to you about me being a people person and I and I work better when I'm doing stuff with people and doing it with people and feeding off people and vice versa. I just missed it too much, you know. Um, I think I, by that point, Shonky had pretty much, you know, he'd, he'd thrown it in. Um, he, he wasn't doing it anymore. He, I think, if not that, um, end of, like, 99, 2000, if not then, certainly a few, couple of years later, definitely, he he started working for some, a game company. Um, so, uh, I, don't, I don't play games, you know, fucking uh, Xbox and all this malarkey or computer games or whatever, but a really big one, you know, really big, big, big game company, well-known. And he went to work for them, programming, making games, you know. Um, so he, Who is the company? Can you remember the I, name? I think it began with an E. I don't know if any any companies come to bring, bring any bells with you begin with an E. Um, okay. Eon, it's not Eon, it's an electric company. You know? it's some, it, it, was, it was one of, if not to, to this day, one of the biggest gaming companies out there. So, EA? Um, EA, maybe, yeah. EA Games. So it was a big company, and he um, and I I I heard about that because I the reason we first hooked up because I used to go out with his cousin, and uh, and she told me you know because I was wondering where the hell he'd gone as well you know so like, what's that with Shonky? what you know he's had enough of all that now he's doing the game so to him it was just a uh, it it was no it was no serious in there Bob Shonky, you know despite the fire and the talent that he had you know a fucking immense talent um, it was just a a flyby moment for him, really, you know, no, you know, no, nothing more serious than him being, hip, being into hip hop growing up and then suddenly doing it and then thinking, well, we're just jamming and messing about, you know, and then he moved on to 
EA Games, yeah, that sounds that's coming to me now. EA Games, uh, Battlefield, all that, you know, yeah, have you heard of that? Yeah, the, the, the company that owns all that, yeah, huge, yeah, huge. So he was programming for them, and I uh, heard about that through his cousin. So I'm like, well, there you go, he's he's found his feet. So I just started to realize, look, you know, I, 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 I. I'm solo here, you know, and I've got to make a choice. Do I now do the same thing that I did leading up to Wonky Heads and, like, you know, chase, 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 chase people who do or, or, or um, who either do or don't want to do this like I want to do it, or do I just push myself into a direction where I'm doing it for me? So now, at this point now, I, I was re-meeting a few people in Swansea that I'd grew up with from the past or bumped into or come across from the past, you know, friends of friends, known them for years, but not really hung out that much per se, that were by this point in bands, you know, like musical bands, rock, funk, whatever. And um, and I was just like, do you know what? And again, I hadn't heard any DJ in a band at that point. There might have been, oh, actually, you know, um, what was that That sort of rock, not, well, not metal band, um, Faith No More. Was it, did Faith No More have a DJ? Um, I think they, if if they did that in its entirety, they might have used one at some point or whatever. I'm sure it's Faith and More. What year um, is this? This is um, well, Faith and More, probably late '90s. If they were to use a DJ like that, right? Um, because obviously, when I when I'd come to this point, uh, meeting these guys, which eventually led me to being Goat Boy. That's right. I was still hip hop, you know. I was. Um, I was hip hop in Goat Boy. I was hip hop leading up to Goat Boy, and I was hip hop after Goat Boy after Goat Boy split. Um, but no, there was nowhere to be seen, and I had to make a decision: Do I now wait at the risk? Because I couldn't get a hold of him. Because, like I said, it was you know, I didn't have a mobile phone, or I don't even think they existed. If they did, they were fucking giant bricks, and <laughs> there's certainly no internet that uh, well I could get access to or what have you. Um, if it did exist, and um, I just couldn't get a hold of him. So I knew where he lived, but he was never there. So I left a note through his door saying, look, I love you and everything, but, you know, don't take offence, but I, I can't fucking wait about for you anymore. I'm going to, I'm joining a band, you know, go boy. But if you do ever turn up whenever, know that, the heck, this is always my number one. Um, which is why we ended up releasing uh, Funky Fresh and Absurdisms, because even though by that point I was in Go Boy, right. he then turned up. You know, his infamous, his infamous self, as it would do, just his fucking Houdini <laughs> out, of, out of nowhere. And I'd be like, fuck, where have you been, man? And what the fuck? Like, and he's like, not, you know, jealous or nothing in any way. But I'm like, look, man, I'm in Go Boy now. I said, but look, like I said to you, man, because I think what happened is, is he'd moved from that bedsit where I used to live, coincidentally, on the street um, that they, uh, have you seen Twin Town? A long time ago. Yeah, the first scene, first, first scene, as soon as it opens, they go driving down a hill and they, you know, massive steep hill and they take off in a car, that street. They lived on that street. Okay. When they were making that film as well. And he lived up the road from that street, on the same street. So I couldn't get older, he was just never there. So I left a note to his door saying, um, I'm going to join a band because uh, I'd met Nick and the boys and they'd asked me, do you want to join us, you know? Um, and I, I, my mind was fried. It was just like, oh, I don't know if I join you now. Am I, am I saying goodbye to hip hop and goodbye to headcase? It was up until that point. It was all my life, you know. Yeah. And I was really nervous. I was like, what do I do? What do I do? So, so I made the decision. I said, yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna join you because I can't wait like this anymore. You know, I, I just want to make music. You know, and um, 
So I wrote him a letter, and it turns out that the landlord, you know, knew he'd moved, obviously, but he just hadn't told me for whatever reason he moved. Um, and he forwarded the letter to him. So he got a letter. Didn't come rushing back to Swansea, mind. It was like a good half a year or a year into me playing with Goat Boy before he came back. And of course, when he saw us playing, he was he was blown away. And obviously, was he was like, "Wow, that's fucking amazing! That's amazing! I'm so so glad for you." And I said, "Look, you know, we signed the Mighty Atom and everything now. And if you if you're up for because it was always in my heart, you know, it was like it was all it was always there. It was never going to go away." And uh, and I said to him, "I said, look, if you serious again about Headcase." I'll get us a deal with Mighty Adam. And he's like, yeah, but they're a rock label. And I said, well, fuck that. This just means they can release records for us. Who gives a fuck what label they are? <laughs> I mean, because we didn't have, you know, really have money, or at least, you know, we could have saved up, but we didn't want to go down that road again, you know, and release shit ourselves and all that. So we were like, if we, you know, and not just that, the most important thing about anything is distribution, I feel. You can have as much money as you want, but the distribution is so hard, mm. um, you know, getting it to... To, to other countries and this and that and the other and, to, and having to spend so much time which I had to do it all I had to do the management I had to do the PR I had to do the producing I had to do the organising like I was back to what I was saying earlier on you know, driving force um, it wasn't just as simple as making a record and yay we are done now you know someone had to someone had to drive the van around the fucking UK to drop them off to the record shops um, and that would have been me like you know that so was you. yeah so so when, when I joined Goat Boy and he came down, that's that's what started us with uh, absurdisms of funky fashion. I think I said I convinced the guys on the label by showing them all we'd previously done. You know, I didn't lie to him. I said, look, we are an underground band, so don't expect to make fucking millions off us. Um, you know, they, they'd actually talked to the same people um, after we released Funky Fresh, which was just a second release on the label. They'd spoken to people. Roger, uh, uh, the, the manager, one of the owners, um, the same people that gave Goldie Luck and Chain their deal, and, go, uh, and they wanted to give us a deal. <laughs> so, so Roger kind of spoke on my behalf, really, because he knew what I was like, and he said, "Right, let me just tell you out right now. He's not just a band. He's he studied music industry management. He knows about the industry." And the guy turned around and said to him this. He told me this, Roger did. He said, the guy turned around and said, so he knows that we won't give him full artistic rights then. And Roger said, yeah, that's right. And he said, well, we can't offer him a deal then. Um, which is what Goldie Looking Chain took. This is why they lost most of their money, or at least, uh, you know, re recoup because the album didn't recoup money. I know that from inside the talk, but that's another subject. But yeah, so we didn't take the deal because they, we knew they would have wanted to mold us into this fucking Spice Girls of rap, you know? And uh, which is what Eggsy said on the phone when we interviewed him, interviewed him in the guest list. He was in the other room screaming on the phone, going, you fucking trying to turn us into the fucking Spice Girls. <laughs> he was on the phone. He was, he was, <laughs> we love them guys. They fucking bought They used to fall. They used to come to our gigs and everything before they, well, when they released the first two white label. Really? Yeah. The first two white label presses, they released themselves. Um they used to come and watch our gigs and everything. So, yeah, they used to follow us and stuff. Lovely guys. like But there's only three of them, the original ones. All the 12 are just fucking mates that got on stage. Yeah, and because, something like that. Yeah, because uh, the darkness saw them, they thought they were the whole band, you know, the whole act, but they weren't. You know? so, anyway, it's another story. Um, so, yeah, lovely guys. They followed us. They were inspired by us and all that. And uh, the dealer they had, they kind of offered us through, through Mighty Atom with it. Now, Roger... Because Roger's so purpose, and it happened with. Have you had a funeral for a friend? Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. yeah they were they were on Mighty Adam, and exactly the same happened with them. 
But the difference was, you know, I say the difference, they ripped Roger off. Um, not not funeral for a friend, but Sony or fucking whoever took him. Sony came around and said, and said to them directly, he said, look, you know, if you don't, uh, if you don't sign a band over us, we're just going to take them. <laughs> They're that powerful, do you know what I mean? Yeah. And you'll have nothing. So Roger had to agree to credits and Mike Yatlin being on the back of their, la- their albums, and that's it. So he didn't really make much money from them. And uh, he was the one that created them. You know, he created Funeral for a Friend. He did all their first stuff before Sony with them. Um, and so that's, in that context, that's what they were trying to do with us. But the difference was, Roger knew, I would have just said, fuck you. <laughs> fuck, what are you offering me? Like, you know what I mean? <laughs> you can offer me 100 million. Unless you give me full artistic rights, I will not be your pop band, you know? So this is going back to what people used to say about us and uh, about original us. no sellout boys. The original no sellout boys. Yeah, we just it, 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 there's no amount of money anyone could have offered us if they if they wanted to mold us into something we weren't, you know, because we spent so many years being us. That's what made us us, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah. And we didn't want to be uh, someone else's puppet. So so you know, and people some people turn around and say, oh, but you know, you could have had you could have released all these out. And I said, look. Never mind the coulda, woulda, shouldas. You know, we've done what we've done, and we on your own terms. Yeah, on our own terms, and we've got a history which is more than in most people I know. You know, that and not just the people that are into hip hop, but most people I know across the board. Full stop. You know, most people I know just get up, go to work, come home, watch Coronation Street, get up, go home. You know what I mean? That's what their lives consist of. Fucking look at my life. You know, look at our lives. Look at what we've done. You know, if you can't look back at life with, you know. And, and be happy with the things you've done, um, you know, and certainly with the talents you've given naturally. Because I've been an artist since I was a kid, you know, to do portraits when I was five and six. And uh, so I was naturally artistically gifted. And I think if I, I think if anybody has that ability and doesn't use it, I really feel sorry for them. I really do. Maybe something's stopping them. I don't know what, but if you have talent, use it. It's been given to you by, you know, whether you want to call it God or whatever. It's been given to you. It's in your bones. Use it, you know? It's a privilege, absolutely. It's a privilege, yeah. Going back to absurdisms for a second, I do want to talk about this specifically yeah. and that creation because you've elevated your production at this point. How would you typically create a vibe with Knobster at the studio making that project? Well, by that point, I'd already been in Goat Boy a few, couple of years. Right. So I was now not just in a band, um, not just in a band for the first time, but experiencing outright musicians, um, you know, discussing stuff with them, you know, as a DJ, which even if even if there was DJs in Faith No More or, you know, um, what's that Fred Durst band? I can't remember the name now. Limp Bizkit. Limp Bizkit or whatever, right? Uh, which DJ Lethal, wasn't it? which he was in House of Pain and stuff like that as well. You know, I can I can pretty much tell you this for a fact, purely based on observation, that they don't interact with them in a musical way. They just scratch. You know, it's just a typical fresh or or them kind of cuts. But I was never like that with Ingo Boy. I always used to use musical parts. So it took me to a whole new level, not just within creating music, but um, but within the production of it as well. Even though I'd done music industry management. And I knew how to use a, a mixing desk and stuff like that. I'd only ever done it with hip hop, with loops, with with hooks, maybe drum machines and stuff like that. So to then do it with live music, and then say maybe get some of the boys um, playing some riffs for me, and then looping them, and then treating that loop 
not like a yes hip hop, but in a, in, in a hip hop made way, but not in a hip hop um, production or engineering way. You know, I then treat it like a like a band. You know, so that's where the, the sound changed for us as well. People listen to absurdisms. I, I think aside from maybe um, a noms one massive insect, which is an instrumental, the rest on there are. Not outright live, but they got they've got more of a, an umphy liveness to them, if you like, you know, compared to what Wonky Edge had, which was pretty much mostly or entirely sample bass and drum machines, you know. Yeah. Um. So definitely, it was definitely that you know cross crossover, and of course, Nobs would just you know he would adapt, he would adapt to whatever as an MC because to him he's just rapping over you know sort of loops music whatever. But from my point of view, not just as a DJ, but as a obviously by that point a musician and engineer and producer and god knows whatever else um yeah it um my perspective it just widened immensely you know um which is another reason why i you know started using instruments later on and and, and up to now a little bit you know guitars banjo like uh, like absurdisms i played the fucking electric mandolin on it you know i don't know if anybody knows that i can check that in the notes um mandolin played by me um so, you know, original Wonky Edge and I'm trying to think of the names of the other ones on, on the EP. There was two I played electric mandolin on. Uh, one was through a wah-wah or an effects pedal and one was um, was straight or I put an effect on it on the desk. So I would never have done I would never have even fucking dreamt of doing that if I hadn't been in a band. You know what I mean? It would have always been samples or drum machines. What's interesting about those songs is that it's really hard to make the distinction between what's actually live instrumentation and what isn't. Yeah, 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 yeah. I get you on that one. I feel, I, I, within Go Boy, certainly one of the tracks in particular, um, oh, I'm trying to think of the name of it now. There's one track where me and Nick, um, we put the track together pretty much before the drummer and the bass and all that come in. And, you know, Praise to Nick for this, the guitarist and singer. Now, I picked the sounds, or like I think it was a Jimi Hendrix album, where Jimi Hendrix was, was letting off, was ripping off, I uh, was letting rip, you know, a guitar riff, or whatever like that. And I would uh, transform it, bend it, put it through a wah wah, wah it, and stuff like that. And he was like, look, let's do this back and forth like you were a guitar. So when we recorded it, people, to this day, I don't think realize that I'm actually cutting on that track. I think they, re I think they must think it's Nick playing a guitar, but it's not. It's actually a bunch of the tracks on it like that. Some of them are outright hip hop. Um, like the beast that licked me is me doing one for the treble, two for the bass. You can hear me cutting on that. But there's one or two others on there that, yeah. um, predominantly are me playing back and forth with Nick on the guitar, and uh, you can't tell that I'm cutting on the track at all. Because it's musical, so that was that was aside from that the Beast of Lickley track, which was pretty much hip hop funk. Um, all the rest on it are rock or combination of jazz, drum and bass, you know, a mixture of musics put together. That when I, I'm cutting, you know, noises, I'm, I'm not cutting any typical hip hop breaks really that you could recognize. They all blend in with the music together. So I, uh, yeah, I absolutely, definitely crossed that over a little bit, probably unintentionally, if I'm honest, you just because it was becoming a part of who I was, you know. Um, I crossed that over into Headcase and stuff, and 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 that became even more so when Lou, when then Lou came on the scene later on, 
because Lou was a, is you know he's a is a practice musician like you know he can play he can play pretty much fucking anything like uh, but it's sax and um, uh, anything anything wind but mainly sax he was you know he was the dog's bollocks at like um, and so he loved me with the decks he was blown away with the deck side of things and 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 probably because of what I just said about me using just completely wacky different outside the box cuts. Which I gotta be honest with you, I don't I haven't heard anybody, even to this day, do it. I still haven't heard anybody within hip hop use cuts off albums that are not hip hop. They all use like these hip hop battle break albums or do you know what I mean? I don't know if you agree or not. I mean if if you've heard anything, I'd love to fucking hear it. I really would. And I I haven't heard every single record or album out there that's hip hop, obviously, and I'm sure someone must have done it as well, but but uh, it became me as an entirety then, you know. I, I just pretty much stopped using the typical fresh and the and the fucking one, two, three and breakdown and all that sort of stuff. Um, I mean, when we were live as well, bear in mind, because there was no DJs um, to the extent of what I was doing within bands in the UK, when we were touring and stuff, and I'm, I'm not joking with this, nearly every venue, and we played fucking thousands of venues, you know. We played Glastonbury, John Peel introduced us on Glastonbury the year before he died. Um, you know, he phoned us up in Mighty Atom, and I answered the phone, because <laughs> I worked in Mighty Atom as well. I, I did graphics for him as well, and I did a bit of engineering, um, and created websites and everything as well. But um, so the phone rings, John, John Peel on the other end of the phone. Um, and I'm just like, you know, he's my fucking hero. Like, you know, I'm like, what the What fuck? was that conversation like? Oh, man, long. And he was like, I've got to go. But it started off, right, because he, he, we did a session for him, Goat Boy, and um, <clears throat> it was that night that it was uh, meant, I think it was that night, was it? Or was the night, it was the night before, I think, it was meant to go live. And we were sitting waiting for it, you know, to play, and nothing happens. Oh, sorry, his show comes on. And then at the end of the show, I think it's Joe Wiley or someone saying, right, just so that you know, that was an older recording of John Peel because his aerial fell off his roof. That was the first time we realised that John Peel didn't do his shows from Radio 1. He did his shows from home. He's the only DJ that Radio 1 let do that, apparently. Well, up to that time when he died. Anyway. Maybe they do now, but up to that point, all DJs had to, had to DJ or did DJ from Radio 1. John Peel was the only DJ that DJed from home. Um, and had the privilege given to him to do that. So his aerial fell off his roof, and that's what the phone call is about. So you're like, I'm really sorry. He said, just to let, because we were gutted as fuck. We were like, why is he, what the fuck? So even though she said the aerial fell off the roof, we were just obviously spinning out. We were like, shit, is that the real reason? Or does he just not want to play the show and all that? Because we were his favourite band leading up to the year he died. You know, he said that in his show. He said that they are the top of my list at the moment. Go by. He said, I, I fucking love them. He used to play us every day. And uh, anyway, he rang us up and he said, yeah, I'm really sorry. The aerial fell off the roof. I had a fucking bit of a storm here and all that. And he said, and it was just as about as I was about to go live as well and put you guys on. like. And, uh, and of course, I couldn't just let this conversation end with him explaining that. I just ended up to challenge him. He said, look, man, I remember you playing Teal Rock back to burn. In 1986, and fuck, that was it. Done. I'm done. I'm like, oh my god, just, you know, and just and he's laughing, and and he, he said, oh, I love your accent, and the fact you're just rolling it off, and and the passion that's coming from you, it was just it's something I'll never forget. You know, we we're in his book, we we're in his book, and everything. Like he wrote about us in one of his books. So yeah, it's a real big honor that was, you know. <laughs> Yep, 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 yep,
Summertime, everybody goes away on holiday. They've been saving up their pay. I was 25 before I ever went abroad. And we used to go to buttons, that was all we could afford. This year, we're gonna get the ads together. We're going to the seaside, depending on the weather. It's the jolly boys out there. We're all excited. All the wonky wax compadres are invited. We got slabs of beers, bags of tortillas, shouts and cheers when Black Blue Tower appears in the distance. Time to lock up your daughters. We're clocking all the flat on the seafront and they gorgeous. Let's jump the gear and see the sights. Lock into slots, start and fight. You wish him one hand and clap in the other. And see which gets filled first, brother. We go all the blind as good as the rest. It's time to let your hair down, but you get it off your chest. I got the naughty handkerchief and string vest. Old bull chest never had such a quest in Blackpool. Such a beautiful place. It's nice to have a chance to get away from the rat race and breathe in the clean scene. Let's talk about Get a Life which comes out in 2005. Another release which was completely unique and only could have been made in Wales. How does that come about? <laughs> yeah, I think even though it was people like the Herbalizer, I mean, <clears throat> going back to Funky Fresh and Absurdism, it was Absurdism first and then it was Funky Fresh on Mighty Adam. Right. Obviously, I had the utilisation or the ability, especially because up to that point, I worked so hard with PR management, you know, nagging the shit out of people on the phone to pay attention to us. Um, you know, for years, from the time I went, did music industry management in uni, um, which is what I was taught, you know, the, the, part of the uni course, and especially that my, my tutor was amazing, used to give us tips and things like that. And he's like, look, when someone fobs you off on the phone, and they put the phone down, or you finish your conversation, ring them straight back. You know, do their fucking head in. Make sure that even if they don't give you the deal at the end of that, they're not going to forget you or that for 20 or 30 phone calls for fucking five years. Their name, your name will stick in their head. So when you do something next, a month or two or three months later, because the thing with A&Rs and labels and stuff like that, is their job to, to remember those people. They're the people that they remember on purpose and are taught to remember because they are the ones are the driving forces. At least that's what I was taught and told. And I kind of agreed as well, because when I was doing that, you know, I annoyed the shit out of a lot of people in the industry to get, to get us something or here or there or whatever. And I'm not talking about major deals or nothing like that. I'm talking about how we got distribution with Pinnacle, you know, eventually before, you know, obviously uh, Mighty Atom and all that <clears throat> with, uh, with Wonky Edge uh, in the end, because even though I, we did um, the, the van around the country, dropping them off the record shops and shit like that. Um, I did manage to get a small amount off uh, to Pinnacle, and I can't remember another distributor. It's a distributor in the Isle of Wight as well, actually. I didn't threaten him, but I was very strong with him because he, I wouldn't say promise, but he made all these assurances. And in the end, I made a phone call. And I said, look, we're fucking coming down there tomorrow, right? Are you ready? I got your fucking address here. And within two days, he sent a fucking check to buy the whole lot. <laughs> wow. He said, and, you know, he just bought, he bought all the rest off us. So all I'd like to think is that he did actually manage to get him out there rather than just leave him in his garage. Yeah. <laughs> but I think he was scared of us. And we, I, I, we, I drove to fucking Isle of Wight as well. Me and Officer did. Um, to meet him and everything. Uh, Shady, his name was, <laughs> funnily enough. <laughs> Do you think that was a perception you guys battled with a lot? Yeah, people, and I think uh, it was a bad, bad choice of fucking 
name title, band title, Edgy Slads was, I think, as well. Wonky Edge was where we should have left it with a, you know, with a <laughs> with a different shit on the shelf or wonky wax or whatever. But we can't, you know, we carried on with the wonky wax saying, yeah, because we had kisses, we're not us, we but of course everyone outside our box doesn't necessarily, you know, look upon that as how we see it. Like yeah. or, or how we interpret it as the headkiss lads. To us, the headkiss lads wasn't that we were fucking odd psychopath nutters. I mean, I'll tell you something now in a minute. You fucking, I think I might have told you previously. You laughed that off. How we got the deal with zebra traffic, but yeah. So people outside our bubble box, you know, whether it be in Wales or England or even America, as soon as they hear that name, you know, they just think that we fucking psychos. You know, not headkiss as in, or headers, oh yeah, they're headers, you know, and just fob it off. They would think that we were fucking psychos. Don't fuck with them down there, mind. I'm like, why? What's giving you that impression? You know, who's, have we ever beaten anyone up? You know? No. It's like, no one ever admitted it because of the name. And one person partially admitted it, and that was Will Ashen, who runs Big Dada. And he said, ah. you know, he loves us. He loved us to bits. You know, I remember speaking to him a couple of times, um, very briefly. And we met him once, uh, one of the gigs, and I think he actually said it in one of the. I think he mentioned this in the, in one of the reviews as well. After mentioning it to me, he said, "Look, your name, man. He said everything is right about you except your name." He said, "I just don't like the name, like you know, Heggis lads." And I think he, I think they would have signed us as well before Zebra Traffic if we had a different name. I even said to Nob, "Should we just change our fucking name, man?" <laughs> but by that point, we've been Heggis for so long. I just thought. You know, would it work if we change the name? And you know, and, uh, we were just playing with that so much, and we just thought, "Fuck it, just stay, it's just stay against like you know." So, so I agreed to a big degree that I, you know, and I even got to the point where I thought I don't even know why I like it myself. You know, I said, "Let's just call it, let's just call us a knobs and us and slicer man." It's just, it's just fuck the group name. It's just knobs and us and slicer man. You know, because to me that was like an old, that was even an even older school hip hop vibe yeah, yeah. about it. You know, very much a throwback to those days. But the eighties, yeah. Right. And, uh, but we never, you know, we did talk about it in the future, doing it and doing an uh, an album, and just titling it that. But um, obviously that never came about. But um, yeah. So um, so the, the name was definitely determined um how people perceived us and 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 leading to the, the Zebra Traffic deal um with Will Quantech. Um, they were terrified of us, you know? I mean, uh, L.I., who, you know, he didn't get us the deal, but because obviously Will Quantic and uh, Rob from the label had um, adhered of us. We'd been name-checked everywhere by everyone in, in the UK, especially. And obviously the Herbalizer and Blade and all that, when they were asking them, what about, what's the crap with these boys? And every one of them said, fucking bollocks, you, you need to sign them now. You <laughs> know, don't lose them, like. And... Um, so that's what led them to eventually, because they knew Ally from the Aspects, uh, who I'm not even sure were the actual Aspects at the time. Yeah, they, yes, they were, but they hadn't been Aspects for long, or at least not in not in a in a bigger release sense. Um, but Ally, I love him to bits. Lovely guy, Ian, you know. Um, but his words were them football hooligans down there. I know I've never fucking liked football in my entire life. You know what I mean? I fucking hate it. So. <laughs> I'm like, we could only have got that from the name because they'd met us. And yeah, we were, you know, we were like nutty boys having a laugh and forward, but we never at any point ever meeting anyone did we beat anyone up, you know what I mean? Or fucking act like psychopaths or threaten anyone or none of that. We were just, I don't know, 
we were just kind of eccentric, you know, and the way we dress, the way we look, the way we'd act, but never ever nutty in a in a in a, in a, you know in a fighty or naughty sense like that, you know. So the only impression I ever I could put it down to is the name of the band, the group, you know, I guess lads. So because of that, when uh, Will Quantic got in touch with LA, um, and I think it was because Will Quantic's gran lives in Carmarthen or uh, certainly into Wales from Swansea because he was. Uh, going through Swansea to his grands for Christmas that year, and um, I think it was that's that's why he got in touch with LA because he was going through Bristol on the way down here, asking, "Do you know the Agus lads?" And uh, and that's when LA said, "Yeah, they fucking nutters, man, lunatics, man, fucking football hooligans," and he he was terrified to meet us, so we had to actually go to fucking Brighton to get the, to sign the deal. Because he wouldn't, you know, he was too scared to come down. Like, uh, or at least this is what we hear from. I think, I think it was Rob actually from the label that told us. Yeah, you know, in a, in a light-hearted way, not terrified of us. Because obviously, if he's terrified of us and he thinks we are fucking that much of a bunch of psychopaths, why the fuck would he want to sign us? You know. So he just, he, I don't know. We just thought we were just going to be fucking right over the top, heavy, and what have you. You know, and uh, no, of course we weren't. We were more comedic than anything else. You know. Um. Yeah. Um, certainly our live shows anyway, um, and all, all that side of us. But uh, in person, like the Welsh are compared to, no offence, the English, um, we're open-armed, you know. We're like, come in, have a cup of tea, sit down, come on, yay. You know, rarely does that happen in England. You walk down the street in England, you look at someone in the eye and they think you're going to fucking mug them. At least that's what's happened to us over the years, you know. It's like it's it, it was uh, attempted mugging 17 times when we went to London and shit like that. and fucking <laughs> crazy, like... Never had that happen to us in Wales, you know. He's always like, fucking hell, come on, boys, come and sit down and have a cup of tea in my man. You know, we're much more open-armed as a culture down here, and we we allow people in into our lives easier than away. Whether that's because there's too much multiculturalism away and people are just, you know, split apart too much, I don't know, but definitely different. Definitely warmer down here. And, um, yeah, so, he, you know, he, he went to his nans, but he didn't come to meet us in Swansea and that. And that's when Rob said, yeah, look, it's probably best you come down here. Will's uh, he's going to see his nan in Christmas. He just wants a chilled, he wanted a chilled meeting. And I'm like, oh, yeah, it'll be a chilled meeting. And he's like, yeah, but, you know, he thinks you're a bit fucking off, off the fucking, off the cuff. Like, and I'm like, no, not at all, man. I said, look, don't worry, it's cool. We'll, we'll make it a weekend out. We come to Brighton, that's all good. So, yeah, we went to Brighton. Now, we were meant to have a three-album deal, but. I, um, I won't get into the nitty gritty details too much about that, but yeah, we stuck with a one album deal because uh, things came about where people were unsure if they were going to still be about doing it, you know. And I, I was like, all right, and we'll just we'll just ride the wave on this one album. But we could have had a three album deal if if more people around me were as much of a driving force as I was. But by that point, I was just like, Do you know what? I'm not fed up, but I'm just. I'll just go with it because I'm so happy that we're on this label, whether it's one album or ten albums. I just don't care. You know, I was, I was, I was, you know, in inside me was worn out with the chasing people around factor, let's say. And um, and by that point, then I not not given up, but I was like, I'm not doing it anymore. I'm not doing the whole package, the PR man, the management, the fucking, you know, I I just want to make music now, you know, because I enjoyed it so much with with Goat Boy. Um. But I didn't have to do any of that, you know. All I did was go. I was make music and put my heart and soul into the. That's why we were so diverse because I didn't, and and that's why we weren't as diverse. And how could I put it? Um, and we didn't have as much stuff out 
um, with Head Case because um, I had to do so much other stuff other than just making the music that it probably stifled my my chance to be able to make um, or make more tracks that we could choose from to make more albums from. Does that make sense? It does. We had it more does. demos than we did have actual professional tracks, you know. And uh, so yeah, with with uh, with the, with the Get a Life, we had we just decided to go with a one album deal, one album and one single instead of three albums. Because uh, but I, I part of me does I, I I don't like the word regret, you know, because um, we all make choices that lead us to where we are, and you know those choices are made, and that's that. When you regret stuff, and you know they become about, lessons, don't they? Yeah, but it, you know, you're talking about being another person, and anyway, it's like I am who I am. So right, unless, unless you hate yourself, obviously, which I don't. So. Um, so I don't regret anything, but I do kind of wish that we did take the three album deal because I think it would have maybe pushed pushed Nobster to be more professional for longer, if that makes sense. What was it about that album specifically for you that was such an enjoyable experience? Uh, in, in a lot of similar ways to Wonk Years, Get A Life didn't happen in the studio like in a few months. There was tracks... Um, on there that had started off as jams, not many years before, mind you, you know, but certainly because Get Life was released in 2005 and uh, <clears throat> I was in Go Boy around 2000, maybe end of 1999 and Gun was off doing his thing or whatever. And um, and then when he did come back down, you know, we were in the middle of recording the Go Boy album and doing gigs and, and whatnot. Um, so it took a few months, maybe a year <clears throat> of, of that before we, you know, we even entertained, or not, you know, before the, I even entertained the idea that we could get us on that label and uh, and do some stuff. So, so when we did, in between that time and the release of Get a Life, um, because it happened quite quickly, because we already had it, we already had Get a Life. We didn't make Get a Life because Zebra Traffic signed us. We'd already made Get a Life. Right. We pretty much completed you know we were on the ver- you know we were on the verge of making an album we hadn't called it get a life at that point um but most of the tracks were that jam uh, were done down lose or in mine or in stoves you know what i mean um mr stove um uh, in different people's they, they were jams that had ended up turning into professional tracks that because i had utilization of the mighty album you know 36 or 48 channel desk that used to be actually the desk that was owned by owned and used by Jane's Addiction uh, because Joe Gibb, who helped us engineer it, Joe Gibb engineered Catatonia, um, fucking Left Field, the list goes on. He's, nice. he's engineered so many famous people. So, well, he actually ended up working in Mighty Am. So he helped us with the album and the engineering as well. You know, no credits on there really for, for, for him because he didn't actually do it. You know, it was me that was doing it, but he was a massive help to me. And um, um, yeah, so so he helped me get take tracks from what were bedroom jams per se, you know what I mean, and help sort of filter them down to make them sound. Because I wasn't into that. Oh, let's clean this up, shit. You know what I mean? It's like I liked if it was dirty. What I needed from Joe was to make that dirty accessible. And obviously listenable on a level where, it, you know, you're not turning it up in your high and go, oh, fuck, turn that down, you know? Uh, kind of like E-Dan, you know, E-Dan, you know? Um, yeah. Mega Rapper, you know, his yeah. stuff sounds like it's been made in a fucking toilet in the shed at the back garden. Yeah. You, you can fucking whap it up the full level and it's bumping, you know? It's a balancing act, isn't it? 
yeah, so I didn't really know how to do that that well. So he helped me a lot in that context, Joe did. Um, he did engineer some of our stuff that uh, we did a, a radio session, which uh, BBC, I wouldn't say the BBC messed it up, but we were meant to go into one of the BBC studios to record it and something happened and they couldn't do it. And they knew we were in Miami, obviously, and they knew, you know, there was a studio there and they knew Joe was there. And they said, look, can you get Joe to do it? Like, and we were like, yeah, I'm sure he'll do it. So he helped us out with things like that as well. Um, yeah, he's a big help. He, you know, he, he taught me a lot. Um on, on how to, you know, he taught me more on how to engineer in that context than I did, than I learned, you know, in, in 91, 92 in, 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 in university. So, uh, again, just another leap in, um, in music making lessons, I guess. So, uh, so get a life was an amalgamation of about maybe two years ish of, of jams and stuff that we were doing with the boys, uh, but when we were doing it, we weren't like, right, this is an album. We're going to release this. We were just making tracks similarly to what we did leading up to Wonky Heads. Sure. And then, because we didn't know we were going to get the Zebra Traffic deal, I weren't even sure, if I'm honest with you, if, if, if Mighty Am was going to release it, anything beyond Funky Fresh as an album. Um, because um, we had a distribution with Pinnacle, with both of them, with Absurdisms and with Funky Fresh. But they... Um, I, Roger and Dio oh might yeah, and they didn't want to press like five, ten thousand, you know, copies. So we only had a couple of thousand copies pressed of each of them. Um and and the and the seven inch. I'm sure the funky fresh seven inch, they paid the CD obviously as a label, but because we wanted a vinyl, we didn't just want a CD release. Uh, you know, still to this day obsessed with vinyl, but um I think we paid for the single or 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 we at least uh, hugely chipped in towards them to so so we had like two thousand CDs pressed and um, I think we only had like five hundred singles pressed ourselves um, or we chipped in the most part for the singles um, the seven inches um, so yeah so I think that led me to really believe or think that they weren't gonna there was no way they were gonna release an album because might yeah you know. They were a rock label or whatever, and yes, I was working with them, and yes, was, but I knew Di and Roger. They wanted to be millionaires, you know. They wanted to be millionaire record label owners, you know. There's no two ways about it. And you know, by that point, they realised that we were an underground hardcore hip hop band, and we, you know, especially by turning down. Well, I didn't even turn down the deal. Roger turned it down for us, and I just gave him, I gave him a wink and a nod, and said, "Nice one." I said, "Look, you know me. You know me enough to know." And I would have just stuck my two fingers up to him if they didn't give us full artistic rights. So he knew me enough to know, you know, we were the no sellout boys and all that, and just said, "No, nah, it's not going to fucking happen." Um, so that as well, I think, you know, me knowing about that and thinking they're not going to release an album for us. Um, so when that zebra traffic thing came along, you know, obviously we were fucking over the moon, you know, we were buzzing, you know, um, even though it wasn't, um, it was, was it well, it was American and UK publishing, so it wasn't worldwide publishing. It wasn't like in parts of Europe and Australia and all this and all that. Even though our album somehow got there, you know, we, we had people take take photos in record shops and say, "Fucking album, you're in fucking New, in Melbourne." Like I'm like, "Fucking hell!" Um, I think Kazakhstan, our album was in one in one shop as well. Some guy was out there or somewhere out that way. Like I was like, "What the Wild. fuck?" Yeah, I just look at a photo of it. He said, look, I've just come. To, I'm sure it was not Kazakhstan, somewhere like that, you know, Pakistan or somewhere like that. And I, Bonk Yeds and, um, was there, like, I was like, that's bonkers, man. 
So that goes to show Pinnacle did, did a good job in the sense that they did get it, you know. It traveled. Yeah, I traveled. I couldn't care if it was like only two copies in Pakistan. Just the fact that it got there, it was like, I was quite impressed. Um, most artists who get too big, see, they don't they don't look at little things like that and think, fuck, man, that's amazing. It just goes over their head. But every single thing like that, I'm so proud of, you know. By this point, you're smashing a live circuit. You're doing a lot of live shows around the country. There's a lot of this sort of newfound focus of stability you're forging. Can you talk about higher learning as a watershed moment where anyone into hip-hop in Wales could find themselves? Um, well, higher learning, like the Cardiff Knights. Um, yeah. yeah. Um, i got to be honest with you. Um, higher learning is the one that sticks in my mind the most but i know there was other ones that we did you know that we were you know that we played at or hooked up with or whatever but that is the one that i remember if you see our cardiff nights you know i'm like how you learning but there was others weren't there it was definitely others because we played at others it wasn't just higher learning you know um yeah. um because high learning was in a two gun um predominantly i'm not sure if the higher learning did the iva bar club i'm not sure so no. or, or whether they, they, they or moved whether, a couple of they, times. Yeah, they moved a couple of times during there. But um there was other there was other nights as well. And I, I can't remember what, what other nights there were. But the higher learning ones, um, not just the ones that we played at, we'd always see a flyer for higher learning, this act playing, that act playing, that act playing, you know? Mm. So um so they were in Cardiff, what space space were in Swansea, you know? Um so Yes, there was other little nights like there was a kind of shakedown and and uh, whatever in Swansea. But if anyone was to ask, oh, any good hip hop nights in Swansea with gigs, bands, people coming from away, it was always like space, 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 space. And then same for Cardiff, any other action, high learning, high learning, high learning. And that's how we got to meet, you know, obviously Captain and Dregs and and all them boys. Like, um, obviously, we'd met F, Matt, and uh, and cuz way way before then and they they had knew them boys um um i'd heard of sure shot is it drags his first sort of act is it like early 90s or whatever yeah like a, like that's poppy, right like a poppy rap act or whatever i've heard of them but i've never heard them and they won some competition today or something themselves um on tv or whatever right um but um uh, other than that when we first met Drags and Captain and all them, was higher learning. You know that that's how that night and the organisers of that night and everyone involved in that night was like those community centres in in the Bronx and shit like that. It was bringing people together from uh, from Newport, from Swansea, from Cardiff, and you know. And that's the other thing as well. You know, from Swansea, you know, there's a lot of people around us. Not necessarily mates, mates, maybe associates more than anything else. They were heavily into football. And of course, certainly back then, you know, it's, it happens now, I guess, but certainly back then, it's the fucking eight did Swansea and Cardiff eight did Swansea and Swansea eight did Cardiff and all that shit. I mean, we just saw a lot of people and go, what the fuck is wrong with you? Like, you know, are you fucking real? Are you on this planet? You know, it's a bit of leather kicking on the field and you fucking ate that, that city that's in our own country because mm. of that. Are you real? Are you fucking serious? So, we hated that. So any confrontation in that respect, which did happen once or twice when we were in Cardiff, but not from hip hoppers, just from some twat that had gone to the club that was that sort of didn't mind hip hop, but was pissed. But he was a football head, you know. Yeah. Oh, you fucking Swansea boys, you know, fucking. And every fucking time, this Cardiff boys were always there going, "Oh, 
fuck off. You know, this isn't about fucking football, mate. This is about hip hop, yeah. Hip hop brings people together. You know, I never forget. I know I can't remember who specifically, but I do remember Cardiff Edge sticking up for us. Not that we really needed it, you know, because we could look after ourselves. But we didn't want to fight people for that, you know. But it was nice to have that family unit back, you know, back us up, you know. Um, I know we've got like what, what they call Blue City Cardiff. Rappers now, and um, yeah. you know, and what have you, and obviously just very football oriented and stuff like that. But I can't imagine even them, you know, getting on that fighty, fighty football hooligan shit. You know what I mean? It's just they proud of Cardiff, and that's cool. You know, that's cool with me. It's like it's silly, man, and it just breaks football breaks people apart rather than brings people together. I think, but as hip hop brings people together, you know. So yeah, we've always uh, always done our early stuff from Walking Years in Cardiff. Um, not just did our live gigs, we used to go up to higher learning nights and even when we weren't playing, just to go and see the acts and hang out and stuff. Higher learning to me was like when we were in Bristol, the cozies of Bristol. Uh, it brought all the the graph artists, the breakers, the fucking MCs, the DJs together, you know, the people who were into that yeah. culture. So that's how I remember higher learning, you know, it being a you know, it being a central base of love. For, for, for hip hop from from wherever you were in in Wales and I, of course I'm sure people from England come down as well but you know it was it was our Welsh base you know it was a bridge for the culture wasn't it yeah, it, truly, totally. it truly was a meeting yeah. point those headcase higher learning shows elevated your name so much back then yeah uh, you know the flyers we've got for them and 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 the, and uh, and we did actually we did do a couple of higher learning nights in in the Iowa Bar Club, uh, I think one of them was um, with uh, Rough Intellect, which were West Wales boys um, that we did stuff with, and that was in the Iowa Bar Club. So yeah, they did shift around from the Tukan to the Iowa Bar, but fuck man, I, never, I I remember them in detail those nights. You know, I fucking I loved Me too. it. I Me really too. did love it. You know, it was it's just uh, you can't replace those nights again. You know, it's just which is quite unfortunate, really, but. Um, yeah. I, I, I absolutely loved it, and I really do miss it as well. It's not—it's—it's it's, it's almost scary that it's not going to be the same again, you know. Um, I remember but, those shows being almost theatrical esque in a way. You would insert men that would come out between songs. <laughs> well, I was skit men, yeah, yeah, yeah. We'd yeah. have we'd always because to me, well, and to us, but to me, being again the a, a driving force to a degree. I mean, I, I, not like a movie or theatre set where I would be the director, you know, because we'd all suggest shit. I mean, I didn't say to Nobs, I put a fucking tutu on, you know. He, that's just what he fucking liked doing, you know. He likes doing his thing in that way. So a lot of the, um, the things that we incorporated were either personal ideas that we'd come up with ourselves. But as a set and what we would do, yeah, I would sort of, I would be more the like, look, let's just let's not lose the plot here now, you know. Let's keep this as a fucking a visual show, otherwise it could easily fall apart. I suppose that's with um that comes from me with the with the organization of having to learn through the music industry and knowing that it at least needs some kind of order. Because if it hasn't got any order, it'll just things start branching off in all directions, and before you know it, it's a fucking mess. So um, so yeah, uh, we would put these little show ideas together, you know, and and like I said, jazz was just a mate, certainly by that point, and you know, DJ was long gone. He just loved hip hop. I, mean, I look, man. I, I'm like, look, you you were, you were such a lovely, nice, soft, gentle guy, but you're funny as fuck, man. You up for doing a little, you know, skit on the show, and he's like, yeah, but I can't rap. And I said, no, no, just do something funny. I don't know, dress up as a farmer and shag a sheep in between or something, you know. 
<laughs> which he did in Sheffield, and uh, yeah, was, you know, Gunshot talked about that, and, and the one where I spat the maggots over the crowd, like, but which the club owner weren't too happy about. But um, yeah, I heard about that story. Tell that story. <laughs> Uh, just up with the Sheffield boys, and we uh, we hadn't even pre-planned this. We walking around, and we walk past a fishing shop, and uh, I mean, I bear in mind, I've been veggie since I was a teenager, you know, and meeting her. So this was quite a daring thing for me to do, you know. But um, <laughs> she so walked past a fishing shop, and you know, we're all there buzzing off the fact we're going to play uh, the boardwalk with um, uh, the Red Eye Knights and stuff like that up in Sheffield, and. Uh, I think it might have been charged. Someone just dropped the hint. Oh, go in exercise and fucking eat some maggots, you know. And I'm like, ah, oh, fuck off. And so I went in and bought the maggots and I and uh, in this fishing shop and you know throughout the throughout the entire afternoon, but I'm carrying them around. <laughs> the idea comes out in it in my head. And uh, of course, um, Andy and the boys from Red and Nights are like, oh, I don't know if that's a good idea, mine. And so I just kept this stuff in and put them in my bag. But at the end of the show, and of course, you, you know, when you're on stage and you buzz in, your adrenaline is going through the roof. You find, especially if you've got a massive crowd there and everyone's loving it. And of course, I just did it spontaneously. Just got about and just said, "Maggots!" And everyone was laughing like fucking, not knowing what I was going to do with them. Um, I just did it. It wasn't planned, you know. It wasn't like, yeah, I'm going to expect maggots over the crowd. It's just like I knew maggots. I know. I knew everyone would be like, "Oh, you know." <laughs> <laughs> so I just I just did it like off the top of my fucking head and uh of course they kicked us out of the club. We'd finished the set, that was the end of the set. But um I, I say they kicked us out. The owner came running up, who the fuck's part of maggots? Who the fuck's part of maggots? And by which point I was already out the back door and uh <laughs> came back and the guy. One of the boys men uh online mentioned it when I posted a picture recently and uh he said, Yeah, he said the the club owner was I said, yeah, but that doesn't matter because the club was buzzing a few weeks later <laughs> <laughs> when they all hatched. <laughs> wow. Yeah, but uh, wow. one, uh, Billy, oh, what's his name? Billy Blue. Billy Blue or something like that. One of, not one of gunshot as in Mercury, White Child Ricks or um, oh, which other member. Not the three, but Barry Blue, I said. They had a crew. Not like we, we had Ace and then we had like fucking F and you know, they had a crew as well who would, would do like side, you know, side other stuff, other hip hop, whatever. So it was Barry Blue. He was there. We didn't know this. We only, we only knew this because fucking, it just, word of mouth got through. I think it was in an article somewhere, someone wrote. But Barry Blue will never forget the night where Eckes was in Sheffield and he spat maggots over the crowd. Um, so yeah, we would you know we would name check in such fucking weird and fucked up ways throughout the UK. Maybe that's another reason why people just thought we were fucking bonkers, you know. When you look at your contributions so far, what strikes you the most? Originality through turntablism, I think. I'd like to think anyway. Um, going back to what I was saying, saying earlier on, where I was never a battle DJ, you know. Um, it might have been a little, uh, a little bubble of a moment when I was younger, where you know there were situations arose uh, in Swansea. Was like, yeah, we'll do battling, battlers, but and yes, you know, I, I really do appreciate within hip hop that that was a massive part of hip hop's early, you know, well, it still is really like, uh, but certainly more so in the eighties. Um, in hip hop session was was a lot of battling, and you know, not just 
battling in the room or in a club, but on record, you know, you look Teela Rock, all Teela Rock stuff is like, you know, back to burn or like, I'm going to burn you out. You know, I'm going to yeah. burn you. It was all about being the better rapper or being this and being that, but not because they would have ever like, unlike gangster was not because they would never have, um, you know, uh, hooked up with them people and then threatened to fucking kill them, you know, within the room and all that. It's because everyone in hip hop in that era knew that by doing that, all you're going to do is elevate the culture more by making someone else do better than you, you just did. You know what I mean? Um, so they were still hooked up in the room and still hug and say, man, whoa, pff, I know, he just blew me away. Amazing. And then that guy would go away and go, do you know what? I'm going to blow him away next month. And he would make himself better or he would advance himself or try new and rapping, DJing, graffiti. It's, 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 it's through the entire hip hop culture. So for me, I was never a battle DJ. So my battle, if you want to call it that, or my part of like, like come battle me like this then, which nobody could ever, ever do as far as I'm concerned. And if they can, I'll shout out to you all now who's listening to this now. If any of you can do what I did within Goat Boy and Headcase with the records, flipping 15 records in a matter of fucking one minute on a stage Well, I had to pick like seven breaks off one record and I had 15 records. So what's that? 78 fucking breaks? And I had to flip those records over in a matter of seconds and none of them were hip-hop breaks. They were all off fucking like talking heads, you know, Madness, um, Jimi Hendrix, all these other things and all these other records. Virtually... I won't say none, but virtually no hip hop breaks. You know, it was all other all other musical stuff, and you know some of it was blended in with the music, the guitars, the piano, whatever, to make it sound like it was that. And other uh, others were um, were me cutting a guitar when it was obvious I was cutting a guitar. So I think that, and I think mainly because everything else I've done within hip hop, other people have done. You know, it's been done over and over and over again, and I am you know proud of of all that as well. But the one thing I've done that nobody else has done that I can, I can look back and say, you know, I did push myself to do that, even though I didn't know it would work. And I know, and, and it does. And it, you know, I suppose to a certain degree, it's not sad, but I'm, I was a bit perturbed by the fact that nobody's ever mentioned that to me. Nobody's ever turned around and said, you know what, what you did with the decks, fuck man. Wow. You know, um, I don't expect that. I'm still humbled by it, and I still know what I've done. And if someone could come forward and say that they did it too, I, you know, I'd appreciate that because, you know, I, I'd like to hear, you know, I, I did look for stuff like that. I did look through hip-hop and also funk alternative, you know, uh, sounding stuff to see if people were doing. Um, I didn't just do it like, oh, I'm going to do this because no one's done it. I did hunt for that. You know, I thought, fucking, well, why isn't anybody using you know, uh, uh, hip hop in this context. You know, I'm talking about not wonky edge, like because all of them, uh, most of them days, uh, at least to a certain degree, uh, it was using sort of hip hop cuts or whatever. I'm talking about mainly from Goat Boy onwards, you know. Um, but still, um, well, you know, the, the creating of the first, uh, the early stuff uh, leading up to wonky edge, four second sampler. And people don't believe me, you know, I made that virtually that entire album on a four second sampler. Um, but I used to take one, you know, if you'd sample a noise, you know, that noise might not necessarily be one second long. It might just, you know, if a second is like, ding, 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 I might just sample the ding, ding. And then I'll take the end of the, that second, so half a second and another half a second, and then flip it backwards and then take the end of the loop, flip it backwards, and then attach it to the other loop, which would make 
the one second loop completely different um wow. and then i yeah it's like it's hard to explain but um because that's all the equipment we had you know to uh, until we went into grassroots and we added some bits and bobs on top but virtually that entire album was made on a four second sampler so i'm, I'm kind of proud of that as well because everyone was out there with they um, with their Akai 950s and shit. And then we just couldn't, well, we could afford it, but we had to make a choice. It's like, right, do we get that? And then, you know, we can't get a mic and we can't get this and we can't get that. When we've already got this, right now we can get you a mic and to, you know, I, I had to ascertain what was the best thing to break down for us to get in order for us to make shit because we could have easily made the wrong mistake with the money we had and actually not ended up making anything, you know? So um, I, I just stuck with a four-second sampler and an, and, uh, and an STE Atari uh, with Cubase on it, you know? Um, uh, the, the old Ataris, most people used STs, but the STE was um, was the top-end model where you can actually fully kit the memory out, whereas the STs you couldn't. So... Um, I mean, it was just a sequencer, you know, it was not, it wasn't, the music wasn't in there. It was just, we were just able to sequence more tracks through that four second sampler, um, which is why I was able to snip, you know, a quarter of a second off and put it on one track and then another, you know, half a second and another quarter of a second and put another track. So we'd make like 12 tracks from four seconds. <laughs> so because they would overlap and like one would have a, ah, 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 and another one would have a, dip, 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 dip. you know, <clears throat> that's all like quarter of a second. And, of course, when you've got, like, 15 tracks or that, that becomes a track. So I don't think I heard anybody doing that either, you know, back then. You know, and that was, like, early 90s. That was the early 90s, late 80s, you, you know. Well, early 90s, because we didn't have the sample of the 80s. But so early 90s, like, um, yeah. So those those two moments, you know, the, the DJing, that's what I would look at my life in hip-hop and be really proud of is the fact that I never really used, you know, hip-hop records per se, I, I did do shit my own way, and the same with the sampling and the producing. You know, we we we. Uh, I, I don't know to a total degree, but I do know Public Enemy or Hank Shockley. Me, I mean, me and Hank Shockley had a long chat about this. Sorry, Keith Shockley. Sorry, had a long chat about this uh, outside one of the one of the concerts. Um, as if I took a, had a picture taken with him, and then I. Me being me, I'm like, ah, oh, have a chat, man. And he's like, oh, I gotta go back. No, 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 come on, let's have a chat. I gotta fucking talk to you about something. And I just don't leave stuff go, you know, or I never used to as much, certainly. Um, you know, I, you don't get anywhere if you don't push, you know, if you don't push, people will just like, oh, I can't, man, or I do this, you know, I want to know the reason why you can't, like, <laughs> so not tactless, certainly. I had my tact, I had my moments when I go, oh, yeah, all right, hands up, hats off, I appreciate that, no worries. But a lot of the time, I was very, very fucking pushy um, because you just don't get what you want otherwise or what you feel you need. So I had a long chat with Keith Shortley about um, how, pub, uh, how the early public enemy stuff was created. And he was saying, yeah, we used to dig stuff out of skips, man. We just didn't have any money, you know? So i dig stuff out of skips and, you know, a broken <clears throat> drum machine or whatever, and we just fix it. And it wouldn't work like it would work like you bought it from the shop, but it would work in a way that worked for us. You know what I mean? Which is how they created Yo Bum, Yo Bum Rush's show and all that, you know? It's all created on junk fucking toys and stuff. Um, so that, you know, that's, I was like, you know, even though he told me that, I had a bit of a hint of that from the early career anyway, but that wasn't what necessarily made me uh, stick with the four second sampler. It's just because it was just practical because of what we had and the lifestyle we had and we weren't fucking loaded. 
just thought, look, if it works and we can get it to work, let's just get every little ounce out of this that we can. And if I'm honest with you, if it was a bigger sampler or if it was cleaner and only, we, we wouldn't have been who we were. You know, we wouldn't have um, gone on the road we went. We wouldn't have, uh, probably wouldn't have been as original. And then, same with Public Enemy and the Obama Rush Show album. You know, if that was made, you know, too clean and that, it wouldn't have had the effect that the Obama Rush Show had. You know, so those things are quite pivotal to me in, in, in over every single thing in my career. Um, is uh, what I've done anyway. It was um, I, I've taken nothing and made something out of it, you know? Uh, what's up, everybody? Agzi here from Goldie Looking Chain, just dropping in to talk about some some memories because I'm an old man now. I've got no one else to share them with. I want to talk now about um, the Headgate Lads, uh, DJ Slicer. You know, that is, again, within the realms of, of Welsh hip-hop, something that was was right there back in the day for us, you know, during our era. Funny, really funny guys, really slick shows, amazing, you know. And um, when we got to experience seeing them, you know, back in the day when we're doing early gigs and stuff, to be on the same bill as them, to be involved in that was brilliant because when you take it outside of Newport or Wales or or England, people sort of know about our band because we were lucky enough to get signed to a major label and it sort of pushed us out everywhere but things like the headcase lads dj slicer you know equally as good you know they deserve more recognition than they got um you know someone should have put loads of money behind them and put them on a tour bus and forced them to travel for hours and hours <laughs> and the world sweating in front of people but it's it's yeah it's it's really nice to know that there's there's other stuff going on you know i think with with hip-hop in general it can happen that a, a craze or a certain style happens and then everybody jumps on it and then everybody starts copying each other. People may look at our two acts and say, yeah, that one of them's ripping the other one off. Maybe that's complete rubbish. It's people with, with in exactly the same pace, same pace, people in exactly the same place, with the same mentality and the same love of hip hop doing something. And that's, I think that's, what's lovely about it is it wasn't, there could have been a competition there. You know, they could have been saying, oh, that stuff you did isn't as good. It's just, but that's not what it's about. We just sort of saw each other and it was love at first sight. <laughs> I didn't want to kiss them or anything. Not there's nothing wrong with that. It's the 21st century. You can do what you like. I'm just not into kissing other rappers, you know. What's up? My name's DJ Demo. Uh, DJ from Swansea since 1985. And one thing I'll say about... DJ Slicer or Deck Mashman Slicer or Steve would be that up until he came out with that that vision of head case and where everything hasn't got to be uh, perfect and you know uh, polished and on point because you know up until that time if you if if you if your breath control was off or you know, cadence was awful. You know, things like that. There was very few people could get away with it in it. Well, period. Regardless, of the UK or, or US or wherever. So one one thing that I would say, headcase lads, slice one obviously as a driver and headcase as a whole, sort of showed me was that we could we could be who we are. If that makes sense. You know, we didn't have to, we didn't have to emulate at all or or disguise what we was doing, you know. 
whether it be accent or flow, cadence, scratches even, you know? Because, you know, Slicer had his own style, which fitted the, the wonky music way of life perfectly. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't my style and what I do, and you know, I was more battle-orientated, DMC routine, practised, that type of thing, you know? I'm Andy Cowan, former editor of Hip Hop Connection magazine. Headcase lads were unique. Uh, they really changed the expectations of Welsh hip hop, really upped the ante, if you like. Uh, and both Slicer Man and Knobs the Nuts were great stylists. Really think Slicer Man's beats were one of a kind, really inventive, very creative. He had a very otherworldly production style, laced with psychedelic kinks, odd noises floating in and out of the mix, not to mention a large chunk of you know, good old-fashioned wiki-wiki scratching and stuff. It's a real sample manipulator, you know, not drawing from the from the obvious sources. You had to sort of hunt around to really find out those obscure breaks and the old funk and rock ephemera he really dipped into on tracks like If I Had a Hammer or Funky Fresh. As a producer, totally, utterly and seriously underrated. Nuts. It's very much the same case, I would, I would say. You know, he was both funky and funny, really had a really distinctive and, and heavy Swansea accent. And I think most people who hadn't heard Welsh hip hop before uh, Headcase Lads would be surprised at how well his accent worked with hip hop. It, you know, it really, it really gelled. He had a sort of lazy sounding style, which, you know, sort of disguised, almost camouflaged his more serious skills and some very good lyrics. But it's the style itself that really wins. The pitch of his voice, you know, in some songs, he sounds like he's struggling to breathe, but it, it really, you know, only adds charm. And lyrically, he was a genius of finding, you know, the absurd in virtually any situation. A great gift for harnessing colloquialisms and using them to his own ends. The other thing about Headcase Lads is I really like the way that they, uh, that they, you know, paved the way for another generation of, 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 of MCs to to really come through, you know, from Swansea, from, from the locale. So, you know, Shonky, Fog Scratch Your Leg, which I think was an early name for, for Junior Disprol, Little Miss and DJ Cuz, all, all featured on the debut. You know, they, they were opening the curtain just a little to show what what was uh, around in the, in the big world beyond. I think Headcase Lads probably summed up... Uh, summed up themselves on, on, on wonky heads on the sleeve notes where they wrote, ask yourself what's wrong with being original? And the, abs the answer, of course, is absolutely nothing. Hi, this is DJ Kaz, and you're listening to Hip Hop Cymru Wales. So uh, talking about the, my experience in the mid to late 90s with uh, the Headcase Lads and the recording of the first album, Wonky Heads, and... Um, I spent quite a bit of time uh, in the studio just hanging out with those guys uh, during the recording of that album. And it was uh, it was a very exciting time, fantastic time to watch um, uh, to watch this album being created. Um, Slice's production was just mind blowing. Um, even to this day, if I listen back, I still don't know how he made some of those beats. Um, it, it, it was fantastic. And in hindsight, I wish I'd uh, paid a bit more attention and learned a bit more from uh, uh, Slice in regards to production back then. But it was quite difficult when um, uh, 
you just had the energy of Nobs the nuts and his uh yeah is 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 crazy it's crazy hip hop MC in style just just running around the studio and um yeah yeah it was like I said it was an exciting time um so so slice what what I think slice brought to the table was um uh the, the rawness of um the old Britcore uh, hip hop along with a, a his own element of, of wonkiness, um, just weird and wonderful samples, uh, sample choice and how he flipped them. Um, his use of uh, uh, effects uh, was was fantastic as well. And it all just, it, it just worked. It, it, it all sounded like one cohesive uh, uh, piece of work, um, which is quite quite a, quite a, a, a thing to, to achieve back then. Um, Regards to slice on the turntables, I mean, he, he's the deck masher. He was he was ruthless. He was brutal with his with his cuts. So razor sharp with his scratching. Um, so yeah, I feel very very privileged. I got great memories of, of back then watching those guys, and uh, and the, the dynamic between slice and knobster was just unbelievable. You had slice pushing the the the, the project. Uh, forward it was nothing was going to stop that album from being made um uh, and then you had knobs though was just, <laughs> just like you know very very skillful unique no one could could judge uh Nobster's lyrical abilities he was he was fantastic um but he was also murder as well <laughs> being honest i'm sure you wouldn't mind me saying <laughs> he must he was murder for for slice to get to get some of the the work done um but uh yeah, headcase lads, wonky heads, and uh, I, I, I've, I was privileged enough that um, uh, Slice uh, and Nobster asked me to contribute to that album. Um, so I made a, I made a beat one day, and I took it to to to, to those guys. Uh, they played it, and um, yeah, they liked it. And uh, um, Nobster said, uh, you know, "Give me a couple of days." And a week later, um, he rocked up to my my flat and said, "Right, okay, I'm good to record this song. We're going to call it the Nicker Thief." And um, I was like, yeah, cool, let's do it. So Nobster actually made up a story about uh, uh, a man who just got released from prison because uh, he couldn't stop. Um, he had a problem with pinching women's <laughs> women's uh, lingerie. Uh, his name was Cyril Gusset, and that was the story of the song, The Nicker Thief. And uh, I remember the day of, of recording that sto- uh, song in Grassroots. And uh, we... Uh, Slice had come in to do some ad ad libs as well, and turned it into kind of a news report. There was a, uh, a man had just broken out of jail, and this, that, and the other, and uh, yeah, it was it was hilarious, and uh, yeah, it fitted it fitted right in with the whole concept of wonky heads, even down to the artwork which of the album, which was uh, 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 done by Slice. Um, yeah, that's a that was a a, a unique monumental album in uh, Welsh hip hop for sure. And, uh, yeah, it's great to be a part of it. Yes, people, uh, this is Captain Barrett. Huge love and respect for Slicer Man. Uh, really happy that people get to hear some of his stories and hear some of this history because he goes deeper than most. I mean, I first heard Headcase Lads uh, around 98 through DJ Cuz uh, down there at Grassroots. Uh, they were recording what must have been either Wonky Heads or, or maybe the Shonky stuff. Um, 
What I heard totally blew me away. I didn't sound like anything else I'd ever heard before. 100% unique. Uh, nobody on this planet can copy that because uh, it's about as real as it can get. Um, it's not just a musical approach either. It's everything from the artwork to the humour. Uh, there's bits of Cheech and Chong, Fabulous Fairy, Freak Brothers, Spike Milligan, all of that in there, but in the most Swansea and hip-hop way. And I, I think it takes someone like Slicer, who's very intelligent, very passionate, but also gives absolutely no fucks uh, to truly have the balls to put something like that out there. And to be honest, we are all massively better off for it. So, yes, much love to Knobs to Nuts, Loose Tunes, all the crew, and a huge big up to the one and only Deck Masher Slice. <laughs>